Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 51 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. I'm Trevor Dame, and as always, right by my side, yet across the continent, Matt Feuerstein. Matt, we're finally in that exciting time for anyone that listens to the podcast. It's the final five shows of a year for Ring of Honor. This is just four more shows after this, and we are done 2004 Ring of Honor. Boy, I wish it was that close to the end of 2020. <laughs> well, it is only probably four more episodes of Through the Years away from the end of 2020. Oh, snap, snap. Um, um, yeah, I mean, 2004, you know, there were things I did not like about 2004, but, oh boy, this year. Yeah, I I, I would like um, to go back to 2004 for a variety of reasons, I'll, I'll just say. Yeah, some of the, some of the wrestling matches, for instance. Yeah, oh, those would be nice too. The wrestling is almost inconsequential to me, but yes, no, the wrestling was nice. But, uh, yeah, so I think something we should, I should address right up front is none of you would know this. It was going to just be a surprise, like our guests usually are, but, uh, the good doctor, Dr. Keith Lipinski was going to be, uh, on the show for the second time tonight. And unfortunately, he, um, had some impromptu birthday plans. It's his birthday coming up. So happy birthday to Dr. Keith, I believe August 2nd. And so because of that, he, uh, could not do the show this weekend. And because our schedule, we usually can only record on weekends and we didn't know if next weekend would be on, we'd be available. We, we decided to go it alone without Dr. Keith, but rest assured, um, I told Dr. Keith that we could, uh, we'd love to have him back still and, uh, any show he wanted to do. And I think he mentioned in talking to me in private that, uh, the next Chicago show he attended, I think was the, uh, ring of honor third anniversary night three show in Chicago. Yeah. I think that's, so, the, I think that's the very next Chicago show. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, obviously that's a, probably in through the years time. That's a long ways away, but hopefully we will be able to get them back on schedule permitting. And we've been, we've been uh, going a little bit faster the, the past few months since uh, yeah. the lockdown started. Yeah. And, and well, Matt, the truly the lockdown's going to end soon and we'll be back <laughs> to our old schedule, right? Maybe, right? In, maybe in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually. There's a giant outbreak. The biggest outbreak in the entire province of British Columbia is in my city. So, how are you feeling? Uh, yeah, I'm okay. Um, I'm wearing my mask, doing my stuff, uh, uh, going shopping at odd times to try and avoid people being frightened of people my age. You know the usual stuff that you do in the COVID era. But yep. uh, yeah, um, so yeah. You're just stuck with Matt and I for this episode, but I think it should be a fun episode nonetheless. Yes, happy birthday, um, Dr. Keith. Yes, happy birthday. And again, sorry we couldn't make it work out, but again, hope you have a great birthday. And hopefully, at least now, this episode can be your birthday gift from us because we didn't buy you anything. Because honestly, one of the worst parts about doing a, being a guest on a podcast you like is that it's like you don't get to listen to that show for an ep- extra episode because at least I do don't maybe some people do but like i know if i listen to a, if i ever have appeared on a podcast i like like for example matt i hope you don't take offense to this but your old great podcast list them and learn i was not i have never listened to the episodes i have done on that show i was like well that's an episode i never have to listen to so it's just a longer uh pause this, but this is definitely a thing i know about you trevor you're a you're a humble guy you're not obsessed with the sound of your own voice like, no, like some of, like some of us on this podcast are that, that was a, that was a cell phone oh right yeah there. you're so obsessed but uh 
if you want to hear a lot of different voices, ones that I don't dislike, you could listen just to Matt's part of this show, but it would probably be hard to, you know, equalize that out. So instead, you could listen to a bunch of other great podcasts on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network. Like, I usually plug a current show going on, but lately I've been kind of digging back into the older stuff. And so for anyone, you know, if you just go to, like, SoundCloud, search on Google for SoundCloud Pro Wrestling Only, you'll get the SoundCloud feed of Pro Wrestling Only. And even though there are lots of great shows that we plug in the feed currently, there are so many, like, shows that have ended their runs that if you dig back in. And usually most of them have playlists on SoundCloud, so you can just get all the episodes in one place. Obviously, we've mentioned a lot um, where the big boys play, which is a great WCW retrospective podcast. But there was, like, Rich Wrestling Culture with Dylan Hills and Dylan Musgrave. There was, you know, the old Titans of Wrestling show, you know, Goodwill Wrestling, where he had guests on to cover different parts of old wrestling like there was a lot of really good podcasts like hours and hours and hours of stuff so i always plug the new stuff this time how about you know you can check out the older stuff and of course if you haven't listened to every episode of us we have 50 other episodes other than this to listen to so if you've not listened to them all well there's 50 i guess that's my new catchphrase there's 50 me and tony yale even 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 after the 70th episode there's 50 episodes you can listen to (laughs) there will always from this point on be 50 episodes you can listen to there may be even more but starting with the 51st episode there will always be 50 it's true so because there was uh this is the the show we're covering tonight uh Joe versus Punk 2 took place the very next night after uh, ROH Gold. We have no news happened between the show, so we can get right to the show. This is like jo- this is like a show like we were like it's this is one of those shows where it's like when we started this podcast, it's like like imagine when we get to that one. Like this is this is a big one. This is a big deal episode for us. Yeah, it's definitely yeah. I would say like going like oh one day we'll have to cover the Feinstein scandal. Like I would say final battle two thousand four where Joe loses the title. Joe versus Kabashi, and I would say this too. We're all in my head like oh man, like literally like you said like I was thinking two or three years ago if the show keeps going, you know if we don't go insane, we'll get to this one day. And it's it's always weird when you finally get to something you've been thinking about like in just random thoughts for years and like it's literally this is the night with us sweating with no air conditioning and persevering and perspiring just for you fans we're doing it right now um joe versus punk 2 took place october 16 2004 at the frontier Fieldhouse in chicago ridge illinois in front of a reported crowd of 750 fans um, we open with CM Punk sitting in the ring alone pre-show before any of the fans have been allowed in the building. Uh, Punk says the last time he and Samoa Joe fought, the unstoppable monster Samoa Joe couldn't pin the immovable object CM Punk. Uh, Punk says tonight the difference is the match is in Punk's hometown of Chicago. Punk says he's gotten his ass beaten plenty of times in life. When he was in high school, it happened in the hallways, in the parking lot. But he says one time a couple of kids came to his house when he was having dinner with his family, rang his doorbell, and they fought. Punk says that on that day, he didn't look pretty when it was over, but he won that day. And the difference with that day was that they came to his house. Punk says Chicago was where he was born, where he was trained, where he was raised, and probably where he's going to die. He then goes on to say, he mentioned that his best friend Chez is going to be in the in attendance in the crowd on this night. Then Punk says, Ring of Honor has two legends in attendance as well tonight, Mick Foley and a guy who's gone 60 minutes in the past, Ricky Steamboat. 
Punk says, if you don't think he's going to capitalize on all of these points tonight, you don't know him. Punk says, Joe rang his doorbell, and he dares him to try and pin or submit him in his hometown. Matt, before I just ask you what you think about the promo, do you really think somebody rang CM Punk's doorbell when he was young while he was having dinner and started a fight there. That's That would be a pretty brazen bully to come to your house and be like, let's start something right now. Is Phil home? I want to fight him. <laughs> <laughs> Phil, honey, it's that bully. Been beating you up a lot. You can stop eating the mashed potatoes. Well, I can definitely no. tell you that if there was somebody who was able to beat me up in school – they were also able to beat me up at my house, I promise. Um, <laughs> so it was, a, it was a good promo, I thought, actually. Um, yeah, even if it was like – it felt like it was him doing a bit – like for all I know, that CM Punk story is true and a bully really did <laughs> come to his house. But it felt kind of like it was just a forced way of him emphasizing that he has the hometown advantage tonight. But – uh, it was still a good promo, I thought. Well, I thought this was a unique situation because how often do you do we have ROH DVDs that start with like a promo hyping the main event from one of the main eventers? Like you'd think that would be a very common thing in ROH DVDs, but it's really not, right? Like, and I and I've actually had this critique before that they didn't have promos for the Danielson Joe match. You know, like it's just I, I I'm pretty sure they did have promos for the first Punk Joe match, but a lot of times they just don't do the promos. And I think that they're important, and I think that this immediately made the match feel more important. It was also a different type of punk promo than we're used to. It wasn't as dynamic. It was like earnest. You know what I mean? He even yeah. um, he even did a little bit of John Mellencamp, right? I was born in Chicago. You know, all my friends live here. I'm probably going to die here someday. Only difference is Chicago is <laughs> not a not a small town. Um, <laughs> but. Um, but yeah, no, I thought like, you know, it's not like it was an amazing promo, but the existence of the promo, I think, was very, very good and very and helped the helped the presentation a lot. Yeah, it, it set the stakes for the night. And that's a good point that Ring of Honor usually doesn't do promos like this and kind of going further in that direction. The, we'll get to it at the end of the show, but the two promos that end the show are actually both wrestlers in after the main event, right after, like talking about what just happened and kind of selling the idea of a rematch or not wanting a rematch, which again gave the show a different feel because usually you, you know, the end of the show, it's a kind of a grab bag of promos, whatever is, is, whatever hanging threads they're wanting to push for next time it's not always sometimes it can be a promo from the main eventers but this time that's literally the only thing after the main event is just a promo from each guy in the main event almost felt more like an mma post-show kind of thing like you just fought what are your thoughts what are your thoughts all right that's the end and i thought it was actually a a cool vibe for this night for a long time they 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 started and ended shows with like sort of like the the lower card guys right a lot of special k stuff starting and ending the show ring crew express stuff um, people uh, being yelled at on buses, that sort of thing. This is like, yeah, much more solid wrestling presentation. I really appreciated it. Yeah. Um, cut to somewhere else in the building, and we see Alex Shelley, Roderick Strong, and Jack Evans. Shelley says that because of Ricky Steamboat, Generation Next looked like complete retards, that's his words, the night before in their loss to the Second City Saints. Uh, Shelley says they'll take care of Ricky Steamboat at another time. He goes on to say that uh, Austin Aries isn't here tonight because he took Pepsi, the Pepsi plunge the night before. But tonight, Generation X can afford to be down a man because Chicago is their city. So I guess they didn't see that CM Punk promo. Um, he goes, last time they were there, 
They made an impact by beating down Steamboat, the Second City Saints, and Jimmy Jacobs. So at this point, Shelley turns his attention to Jacobs. He says, Jimmy's like a little gnat that he can't get rid of. But he says, after tonight, he promises Jacobs will never want another match with him. Uh, Shelley also hypes that tonight will be the first ever clash between Generation Next and the Rottweilers, the two big stables in Ring of Honor at this point, I guess other than the Second City Saints, and he guarantees that tonight they'll declare their dominance over them. Jack Evans breakdances, he says that the Rottweilers ain't hood, they're gonna get served, and you know this, man. And so yeah, this was a, this was a promo, I mean, it accomplished, like, I mean, it just, this is just a promo, basically. It's not great. It's not bad. It just tells you what's coming up. Did you notice how visual Shelley was being, though? Like, he, he, he inserted a lot of visuals into the promo. Like, when he talked about the steamboat chop, he pantomimed a chop. Then when he talked about the Pepsi plunge, he pant- pantomimed the Pepsi plunge position. Then when he talked, then we talked about the Second City Saints. He, he did the CM Punk X symbol. Then when he called Jimmy Jacobs a pest he can't get rid of, he was like swatting at the air. Then when he talked about the collision course between the Rottweilers and Generation Next, he showed like two fists coming together. And then, <laughs> and then Evans got even more visual at the end by breakdancing. Um, and by the way, Jack Evans saying the Rottweilers ain't hood, problematic. <laughs> I mean, I think it was. I I thought it was funny because, uh, I mean, I, I'd like yeah, to I hope mean, that was Chuck. Yeah, he's a heel. I get it, but that he's white. You know, he thinks he's hood. He thinks he's street. He's trying to appropriate that culture, but he's also just the skinny, fair-skinned guy who is the opposite of hood. <laughs> like, but yeah, uh, I didn't know about Alex Shelley. I I. Uh, It'd be interesting to see someone try and do a promo just with hand signals. I think that would be good. American Sign Language. I'm sure. I bet you it's been done some on some indie. Probably. If anyone uh, email us at throughtheyears at gmail dot com. T H R O H. If you have an example of a promo done just in American Sign Language, and that brings us to the opener. Kind of a historic match in a weird way, and kind of not in a, in a more obvious way because Davy Andrews and T J Dalton went to a no contest in ten seconds when the Carnage Crew ran in and beat both guys down almost immediately. So noteworthy in that this was the first time in Ring of Honor history that a graduate of the Ring of Honor school ever wrestled on the main card of a Ring of Honor show. Obviously, he, he it was not basically wrestling in parentheses, only in a technical sense. Yeah, but he'll, he'll wrestle sense. later, though. Yes, he will. And like we mentioned on the last show, Davey Andrews was uh, considered to be the star student of, the, of CM Punk's first class at the Ring of Honor wrestling school. He kind of just disappeared off the face of the earth about a year in. I believe TJ Dalton, I don't think, was a member of the Ring of Honor Wrestling School. I think he was a student of Les Thatcher, which makes sense because, you know, Les Thatcher was doing a lot of stuff in the Dayton Midwest area, in the Dayton area. You know, he would often be involved with the Dayton area shows. They were just there the night before. So it makes sense. And, and yeah, like Matt said, we would see both of these guys later. Anyway, Carnage Crew run in, beat them down. Loke grabs the mic and says, the Carnage Crew has come to Chicago with a mission in mind. Uh, Loke says, Mick Foley is calling Ring ROH Ring of Hardcore, and everyone knows there would be no hardcore in Ring of Honor without the Carnage Crew. DeVio says they're going to show Moff and Whit- Whitmer what the hardcore is all about. Uh, there was a fair bit of Carnage Crew on the show. I don't know why you really needed this opening segment. Like... 
it wasn't terrible. It was very short, but well, like were, were the, the carnage country, were the carnage crew on any of the other Chicago shows? I don't seem to remember them being on them. Maybe they were on the first one. Actually, now that I think about it, I was going to say this could have just made up for them not being on the last Chicago show. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure, but knowing that they're going to get to run in, into a second match later and get a match of their own, they were going to get a fair amount of time and things to do on this show, but. There's another thing opening. But then for our first outright actual match that gets some time, that leaves us with Jay Lethal defeating Delirious via pinfall in 8 minutes, 19 seconds after hitting the Dragon Suplex. So Jay Lethal's little, you know, his early push continues. We, I think, Matt, we talked recently about how we were a little surprised he lost to Chad Collier and how he got dominated in his loss to Alex Shelley on a recent show. This is one of the, I would say, the early Jay Lethal matches where not only does he win, but he he's he doesn't take out the lion's share of the punishment in this match. This is far more even, if it, at least, I would say, for Jay Lethal. Yeah, I wrote, like, finally a match Jay can win, I hope. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, Gabe mentions that he um, he was on a losing streak, although technically it was really only a losing streak of, what, two matches at this point? Because he did beat um, Matt Stryker at Glory by Honor. Um, but I don't really have any like anything particularly negative to say about the match. It's, you know, it's pretty good, fast-paced opener, considering the two guys, you know, experience level and stuff, and their status on the card. Um, you know, they were working hard. They, I thought this was... The first time I thought Delirious looked good in ROH. I didn't think he looked great the night before, um, and I thought he, you know, he and he and Lethal did like a solid like opener style match. Um, you know, like there was there was some stuff that was um, that was a little bit awkward, like um, like Delirious does like a reverse Rana into the ring from the apron, which I guess was meant to like force Lethal Lethal into the ropes and knock him to the floor. I. Um, I don't know. I guess. Uh, I, I guess. I guess it wasn't botched. It just looked weird to me. The crowd was way into Delirious. Like they were cheering him over Lethal, which I was surprised by. But I guess it's sort of like a regional thing. Um, but Lethal ended up winning with a Dragon Suplex. Um, I didn't think there were any like major like memorable spots or anything. But and this wasn't a dominant win for Lethal. But it was a win, and I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I thought this match was just average, but part of that was because it was short. But I agree with you that uh, Delirious, this was probably like the first performance where you actually kind of – he actually got more of a chance to show what he can do, and he actually did. Uh, Like you, I was surprised that he actually appeared to be more over than Jay Lethal, who was more established. I think maybe part of that is because – I think Delirious got to do the cooler offense in this match. Like he did a big forward flip dive to the floor, which actually Jay Lethal – like prevented him from doing it at first before he got to do it a little bit later and actually got the crowd to boo because you're even though Jay Lethal's a face that's kind of the the heel move where you're denying the even though technically it makes perfect sense for a wrestler to not want to get hit with a move you know fans are going to boo when someone's going to do something really cool and then it's teased and you stop it um I also thought another really cool moment in the match that really you know, the fans liked as well was uh Lethal was going for a big diving headbutt off the top and uh Delirious catches it in midair with an ace crusher, which is always a cool counter. And then he hits, maybe for the, maybe not for the first time, but one of the early instances in Ring of Honor of Shadows Over Hell, he might have hit in one of his other matches, which is the big uh, splash to the back of a guy that's kind of on his feet, just leaning over. And it's always interesting in Ring of Honor where if we're, I'm going to, we're going to praise, I think, the commentator 
commentary later. But one thing Ring of Honor was pretty bad, at, especially for taped shows where they were, I mean, commentary for shows that they had already performed. I think one thing that's kind of egregious that I've noticed multiple times is they never know, like, background on new wrestlers. Like, we've talked about Jimmy Rave, how um, Gabe kept calling Jimmy Rave's running knee the Shining Wizard, even when Punk, after Punk corrected him one time. And there's, it seems like a lot of times when new wrestlers come in, it takes them doing their finisher like two or three times before Gabe knows what it is. Like, you would think that you could write the it down. Of, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could, you could ask the wrestler when he does the show, hey, when I do commentary for this in a week, like, could you tell me what the name of your finisher is? You know, give me a little background. And instead, it's always just like, like they don't even call it, he hits the, his finisher here, Shadows Over Hell. And not only do they not name it, they don't really call attention to it as anything special, you know, where if they did that probably six months from now, they would know, Delirious will be more established and they'll be like, oh, that Shadows Over Hell, that's a big near fall. But. They just don't do it. And it feels like with a lot of guys breaking into Ring of Honor at this time, yeah, they just didn't do the research where I feel like some announcers in different companies would be like, when a new guy's in the locker room before their match, I'm going to be like, hey, what are your big moves? Give me a little background so I have some information prepared. Ring of Honor generally did not do that at this point. Um, yeah, match was fine. My, my one problem with it, other than obviously it wasn't that long, so not much to judge on, I also was – I felt like when – the end was a little abrupt and this is where Jay Lethal is kind of on the ropes for the first time in the match and he just out of nowhere hits the dragon suplex and it's over. Sometimes abrupt endings like that can be fun. I sometimes though it just feels abrupt. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, not in a good way. Yeah, I, I didn't I didn't mind it because it you know got over the finisher, but you know, I thought this match was a opener and it was good yeah. on that level, you know? And before we move on to the next set, one other thing, Matt, is this is yet another show. I was saying this the other day to somebody. It feels like almost every Ring of Honor show in 2004, there's been a camera problem, but the camera problem always changes. Like either the glare is too much or there was that show where it was near darkness in some of the backstage segments or like tonight and some other nights, the white balance was completely off. So like the, the color tone between the uh, the ringside handheld camera and the hard cam just completely different and you get used to it watching but it just feels like it's one of those mist- it's one of those problems we've seen multiple times that this is still on the upper tier of ROH camera related cameras you know, in terms of like the, the way the show looks it's still like among the better ones which is yeah. not not a huge praise but it's true <laughs> yeah that, that, i mean that's sad yeah but you're absolutely right uh we go backstage next to samoa joe another promo hyping up tonight's match uh Joe says in 60 minutes the last time they wrestled, CM Punk only proved one thing, that he couldn't beat Samoa Joe. Joe says Punk thinks he has the advantage, that he has Joe's number, but he forgets that in 60 minutes he failed. And Joe says tonight he'll fail again. So like most of Joe's promos, it's good, but it's very short. He calls him Punker, which is very (laughs) cute to me. Didn't they like? I know the, some people would call Terry Funk the Funker, but wasn't there even like some indie show or ECW show be like the Night of the Funker? Do you think Ring of Honor should have ever done a show called the Night of the Punker? Eventually, if Punk had stayed stuck around, it would have happened. These are the hard hitting questions this podcast dares to ask. <laughs> uh, um, anyway, up next is another. This was a show with a lot of weirdly like m- m- things that were historical but weren't really, but are if you're Ring of Honor nerds because yeah. next. One of the more memorable, one of the more memorable things on the show, I would say. 
Yeah. Uh, we had uh, another notable match in that it was Tracy Brooks defeated Daisy Hayes via pinfall in three minutes, 42 seconds after she hits a lariat. So this was the first time in Ring of Honor that two women had wrestled each other on a Ring of Honor main card in over a year. The last time we had a match like this, uh, a woman versus woman match in a Ring of Honor on a main card before this was Alexis Lurie versus Becky Bayless at Bitter Friends Stiffer Enemies in August of 2003. Now, between that match and this match, there had been some intergender wrestling where you had a hijinks from Special K wrestled Alexis Lurie on a match. Uh, April Hunter teamed with Slick Wagner Brown in a couple of tags against other two other men. And then they had a couple um, women's matches on do or die pre-shows. So it felt, felt kind of looking at the cards, it felt like anytime they did a pre-show, they would they would book another woman just so um uh alice in danger could have a match but they never put on the main cards but so this is notable in that it's the first woman versus woman match we've seen in over a year and i wrote in my notes that it's kind of horrifying that i can call what takes place here both a step up no not both but just a step up in some ways for the treatment of women in ring of honor because i mean it's a step up in that there's actually a women's match on the main card but as i'm sure you'll also talk about the commentary in this, it's like every complaint we've ever made about the treatment of women in Ring of Honor minus man-on-woman violence, all put together in the commentary because they're doing like the patronizing thing where they're overselling how good this match is. They're doing the back padding where they're like, this isn't the diva search, even though their treatment of women at this point was hardly any better that in some ways maybe worse than WWE's treatment of women at this point. They're you know, they're talking about at one point, they're saying like, these women want to fight to get women's wrestling back on Ring of Honor. Like they're acting like the weight of having women's wrestling on Ring of Honor is all on their shoulders and on this match tonight, which if you did this about like any minority at all, that wasn't women. I feel like people would be a lot more offended by the idea. Like, you know, these two African-Americans are fighting to get to ensure the future of them on of, of this race on Ring of Honor. But yet for women, they, they had no problem being like, you know, these women are trying to earn women's wrestling in Ring of Honor. And you just go, Ugh. but and the match itself, it's weird. Um, it's not a good match, in my opinion. They don't outright botch anything. A lot of the work looks kind of sloppy but I, I it's kind of a smartly worked match in the sense that a lot of it's just grappling and long chains of reversal so it's not them trying a lot of spots where you where you could probably botch it more easily uh daisy hayes does hit a really nice uh missile drop kick from the top row that's probably the coolest spot in the match my one problem with this match other than just the sloppiness and how it's so short and the commentary so i guess Actually, my one of my many problems would be actually just like the Jay Lethal match we just covered, an abrupt ending. This one I thought was even more egregious where they actually did a kind of a good job of Daisy Hayes kept doing going for um, a stunner. And they kept doing these chains of counters and reversals with Tracy Brooks avoiding it. And then finally, Daisy Hayes hits it. So you go, wow, they built to that move, actually, as much as you could in a match that's under four minutes. And then Tracy Brooks immediately no-sells it gets up, hits a lariat, and wins. And it was just like, right after the last match, I was just like, ugh. Same finish, even worse, again. But Matt, I'm sure you have more to say about the commentary and stuff, because this was just a another landmark moment for the treatment of women in Ring of Honor. Yeah, I mean, I thought the match was like, 
as good as you would reasonably ex- expect, you know, given that it's Daisy Hayes and Tracy Brooks and they have three minutes, you know, like it's just like they they did fine, I guess. You know, I really have no strong complaints about the match. Like it wasn't a good match, but it couldn't have been, you know, does that make sense? Like there was no chance for it to be um, yeah. given the time and like, you know, the, the the skill level of at least one of the participants. I mean, although, you know, Tracy Brooks hit a couple of. You know, decent. Like her gut wrench suplex, I thought was pretty good. Um, but it's not like these were like the top wrestlers in the country among among women. You know what I mean? Like, although I actually do think Daisy Hayes is a good wrestler. I've seen a yeah, bunch well, of her work at Chikara and even Ring of Honor. I think she will she will go on to have better performances than this. And like and like you just said, she did not. Neither of these women. You, you don't get much of an opportunity getting under four minutes in a company that never books women's wrestling. Yeah, I'm not saying they're not good wrestlers. Like, but they're like you know this. They were young and like this was yeah. And like you know, Daisy Hayes got better over time. This was before Shimmer existed. Um, you know, there just weren't a lot of opportunities for ring time for for them but so i'm not i'm not trying to sound like mark nolte here like like this but the, like you know like but this match wasn't you know much more than it, it could have been um but um you know I, it's i really feel like nolte's commentary you really sensed just how truly he believed that women were inferior when it comes to wrestling you know what i mean like gabe was like you know like trying to sell it and, like, obviously, he didn't show the women the same respect as men. But Nolte, it just felt, like, more in his bones. Which, I mean, I think we knew, like, based on other things he said over time. But, like, um, like uh, he goes, like, there are women out there who are good athletes in all sports, not in just wrestling. And then Nolte says college women's basketball does good ratings from time to time on ESPN. Um, <laughs> oh, Gabe goes... When they're doing like their like roll up fish out of water type sequence, Gabe's like, "This is looking good," and I'm not just talking about their looks. This is some good wrestling. Um, Even when they're trying to put over the wrestling as serious, like they still can't help but be like, "They're hot men, aren't they?" Yeah, like, and there's, there's there's less of that here, but yeah, but Gabe, Gabe definitely comes in with that a bunch of times. Um, they mention women's soccer being popular, and Nolte mentions the University of North Carolina, and Nolte says, yes, it does scare me that I know who won the NCAA women's soccer tournament. And it's just like, why? Like, I mean, how is that any scarier than knowing who won any sports thing? Um, Nolte, um, Nolte at one point just says Tracy has a size advantage here, totally normal, innocuous, innocuous wrestler commentary. I mean, wrestling commentary, but Gabe says... She's curvy in all the right places. Trying not to get, <laughs> trying not to get too sexist, though. Um, and I'm just thinking, like, if you don't respect the women, aren't you at least a little bit afraid of CM Punk kicking your ass for saying something like that? Um, but I guess not. I guess they're cool like that. Um, but like every comment is like some variation on these women can actually wrestle. Women are really people. Like there's just it's just some variation on that. Like Nolte is like we haven't seen any mistakes or sloppy execution. Could you imagine trying to put over a match by saying that? Like this wasn't as terrible as you might expect. Like this commentary had like the same energy as a parent praising their two-year-old for wiping themselves. Like they're just so surprised and so proud of every minor moment to the point where it's just like, yeah, even in their praise, it felt icky in a weird way. I'm sure at the end, Nolte felt very progressive by calling it a terrific match, but like it's only a year before Shimmer starts and the announcing feels like it's from literally like 1940 and they probably would have been more respectful in 1940. 
I, I don't want to uh, psychoanalyze p- people, especially that I don't really know. But uh, one thing I, I actually thought about the treat- Ring, of, Ring of Honor's treatment of women a lot after this match on a couple of long walks. N- not walks necessitated by uh, watching this, but just walks in general. You're like, I, I, I got to get out of here and muse on this <laughs> for a while. I got to uh, have a think, Matt. Yeah. But, um, but no, but one thing I was thinking about um, – you you talked about like how Mark we and we talked about this a lot how Mark Nolte's vein of misogyny always seems a lot more darker than Gabe's and I think one difference and again maybe I'm completely misreading this but it always feels like to me like Gabe's treatment of women comes from a less personal place like it comes from he's doing like kind of a combination of the worst of ECW and WWF attitude era treatment like that women are there not to wrestle not to be they're, they're used there women are there in wrestling for like two or three reasons one to be like pawns and storylines two to be like bitchy he- heel managers which is not a bad you know sherry martell was a bitchy heel manager she was awesome but uh, feels like sometimes in ring of honor that's one of the only roles at this point you could have if you're a woman or three to be uh, sexual titillation or i guess four to get a cheap shock pop when a guy hits you and if you know a lot of that is rooted in that's how ecw largely treated women and that's how in some points wwf largely treated women gabe Gabe was doing what he thought was pandering to his audience yeah exactly and gabe i felt like even it's disappointing for the obvious reason also because ring of honor was a company that was always claimed to be about innovation and pushing things forward and breaking away from the mainstream but in a lot of ways their treatment of women felt like just like well, was everyone else done in the ni- in the mid to late nineties? Okay, that's what we'll do, and we're not going to think about it any past that. Uh, Mark Nolte is like you have said; like it always seems just more personal. It, Some, it doesn't somebody, seem- somebody hurt him. Yeah, G- Gabe sounds like he's doing a Jerry Lawler impersonation. Mark Nolte sounds like he's speaking from experience, like you just said. Um, which is the and again I don't want to psychoanalyze too much, but it's definitely two different vibes you get when they talk about women. Um, the other thing I want to ask you, Matt, about Ring of Honor's treatment of women, I think what we just meant, what I just mentioned, is a lot of why Ring of Honor up to this point didn't give women a fair shake. But I have another theory about another main reason why, and I wonder, I was want to ask you if you agree, which is. Um, if you think about, and I think this will go in later if we talk about the students in their match with the Carnage Crew. Ring of Honor was always, you know, it was the first quote unquote all star indie. You know, it was built around the idea of, you know, before this period, independent wrestling was the best wrestlers in your area, which meant you probably had a few guys that were really good in your local scene, and then a bunch of guys that were either really green or weren't that good, but you just, it was low low ticket prices and it was just whoever you low budget for the roster and was whoever's in your area and then you had the king of indies tournament you had other in- tournaments around that time but it was the first time that there was this idea of instead of just trying to draw wrestling from a local crowd we're going to try and get fans from around the country we're going to get tape sales from like the hardcore fans that really pay attention to this stuff and we're going to book a card that is nothing but like those two or three best guys from each regional scene Altogether, and of course, famously as we've documented in the past, Ring of Honor. The genesis behind that idea was Rob Feinstein and Doug Gentry and Gabe Sapolsky. After they kind of talked them into believing it could work, and getting him to book to be basically like, "What if we just did King of the Indies, but made that a promotion?" So anyway, my, my why I'm talking about this is my point is, 
Ring of Honor was built on like taking really good talent that was established and proven to be great somewhere else. And just as they were reaching like the the state of ripeness, like plucking them off the tree and booking them in Ring of Honor and kind of spotlighting them to a new audience and putting them in a position to shine. And women's wrestling, I think one of the reasons along with just kind of the laziness of, of trying to copy ECW and WWE's treatment of them, I think it's partly because there wasn't a thriving women's scene all over the country where they could say, oh, oh yeah, like there's these women that already have like a built-in large cult following that are great that we could do dream matches with this. I mean, I'm sure there were some that some really hardcore fans would know, but they didn't have followings the way that Christopher Daniels or Low Key or Brian Danielson did. And I think part of it's that too. It, it, it's a sin of just Ring of Honor wasn't thinking about wrestling the way you would need to to develop, as opposed to a company like Shimmer, which I feel I feel was like, part part of the goal was like we're going to spotlight the great women that are here, but we're also going to kind of we're going to make a scene. We're going to develop a scene that isn't there. And I feel like Ring of Honor that wasn't really their thing. Uh, I, you know, I think there's truth to what you're saying. I think it lets them off the hook a little bit too much. Like when you think of you know, they did have Alexis Lurie. They did try to push her as like this like serious wrestling star, but they never gave her a chance to have a good wrestling match. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they had their opportunities. I, I like. I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong because like there is obviously like you want to go with proven draws and and like you know like stars and like there obviously weren't there just weren't that many uh, women who were in that position, but they should have done it anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like. So I, I get what you're saying, and it's not wrong, but I think it gives them – it lets them off the hook just a little too much. Yeah, uh, well, and again, I want to make clear. I don't think that's the only reason. I think the other thing we talked about, which is just their, their kind of lazy just copying of the worst parts of the recent past. Is yeah, it was, also, it was an early 2000s pro wrestling business, and they didn't have that level of vision. That, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah. But uh, going on, there's one note about this match from the Pro Wrestling Torch after the show occurred. Uh, Wade Keller, or someone who wrote for the Torch, because sometimes he had other people write for the Newswire, but he it, it was written in the Torch. Ring of Honor will be introducing more women's matches in the future after a good response to the Tracy Brooks versus Daisy Hayes match October 16th in Chicago. Says Sapolsky, right now we have some quality women on the roster with the additions of Lacey, Daisy Hayes, and Tracy Brooks in 2004, along with regulars like Allison Danger and Becky Bayless. That gives us a really solid roster right now of women that can all have good matches against each other. Daisy and Tracy really came through in Chicago and received a very positive response. In fact, the only complaint I saw of the match was that the fans wanted it to be longer, which is great. I feel that's a, that a quality women's match can really add something to a show and to the pacing of the show. I'm not saying you're going to see women's matches on every show, but considering that we had no women matches on main shows in 2004 until Chicago, you will see an increase in 2005. So I will say Gabe did deliver on his promise <laughs> on having more than one. Uh, i guess the other thing we forgot to mention that this reminded me matt is i thought the crowd response for that women's match was interesting because it felt like half the crowd was really open and excited like wanted to take it seriously and were cheering for the spots and and there but there were also some fans i felt like that were treating it more 
in a regressive way. Like you could hear any time in the grappling when a butt got close to a face, there were some ooze. At one point, a fan very loudly and audibly yells like start kissing when one guy, when one of the girls has the other in a headlock and you can hear some fans laugh at that. So I feel like it was definitely a 50 50 on the fans that were like, Oh cool. Women's wrestling. And the 50% that was like, I just want to see boobs and butt. So yeah, I mean, I guess all in all, they were more respectful than the commentators, but still not not a perfect showing by Chicago right there. Yeah. Dr. Keith was in the crowd. I'm sure he reacted the right way, but some of those other people he should have tisk tisked. Definitely. Exactly. exactly. Loud, um, imagine hearing like a loud tisk 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 chant. <laughs> and he's a tall man, so that tisk – and he was in the front row. That tisk would have carried. That's true. Um, a match that did not make to the show, it, this show like – like a lot of Ring of Honor shows, they had to cut something for time. I guess continuing the sad saga of Matt Stryker's downfall, Matt Stryker defeated Dixie in three minutes, ten seconds. So not only did this match only last three minutes, did not even make the show, Matt. We never saw it. But even even when Matt Stryker wins at this point in his Ring of Honor run, he loses. But Oh, my move- God. That is actually – that's actually like very sad to me to hear that. Yeah, yeah, I was kind of surprised too because, you know, sometimes you don't know these things until you look up the results and like cross-reference them with what you saw. It was like, oh, there's like an extra match here in, in these live reports that obviously was cut for time. And if you notice, pretty much every match except the last two matches before the 60-minute main event are shorter than you would expect from Ring of Honor because obviously they were budgeting out time for a 60-minute main event. But yeah, also, it was tight. also Also cut out the entrances. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a great point too. Is this is a show where Ring of Honor? You up to this point, you always got like different length of entrances depending on how short they were on time. But this show was notable where basically you got almost no entrance. Right. Yeah. I think just until the last two matches, like you said. Yeah. So that brings us to a four corner survival match. Uh, Josh Daniels defeated Angel Dust, Matt Seidel, and Trent Acid in six minutes, 33 seconds when he pinned Angel Dust with a German suplex. So, you know, your usual four corner, you know, spot fest match. Matt, this might have gotten two or three minutes more on a different card that didn't have to have a 60 minute main event. But what'd you think about the time they did get, which isn't that much for four guys? By 2004, October 2004 standards, this roster of guys is a little bit like Jobber City. Like, not like Jobber Jobber, but like Matt Seidel was not established yet in ROH. Angel Dust was not at the peak of his <laughs> successes. Neither was Josh Daniels. And Trent Acid, I think, has had lost a lot of cachet by this point. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, this is – he's kind of in the same spot Matt Stryker is in, which is he's still technically booked for the shows, but – Ring of Honor, he's kind of just playing out the string. His push is done. He's still the most over guy in the match. Like, there's a We Want Acid Chan as Angel Dust and Seidel are wrestling. And Gabe, just like the night before, was like, Izzy is strung out on drugs. And I'm just like, but you're going to book him again? Like, he missed the show because he's strung out, but you're going to book him again? Um, but, um, yeah, you know, just um, the acid, acid is still doing the whole thing where he's dressed very badly and the announcers give him crap over that. And he seems kind of out of it, but he's um, he's blind tagging himself in, and 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 taunting and, but he but he keeps getting attacked. Like he gets hit with a um, a sudden head scissors by Seidel, and then uh, but but Acid is like you know he's cutting people off. Daniels goes for a dive, Acid cuts him off. 
And then that allows Seidel to come off the top with like a double stomp to the back of Daniel's neck. So that was like a good little setup sequence there. Um, some of the other big spots, Angel does hit a, a moonsault off the top to the pile, although he really only hit Seidel there. Um, then Daniel's chopped everybody. Um, and um, kind of um, D- uh, Angel Dust is, is kicking Daniel's, but Daniel's catches his leg, chops him down. Angel Dust hits a double stomp to the back of Daniel's head. So I, I wrote this down. How many wrestlers do you think have been double stomped in the back of the head by two different wrestlers in the same match? Because Josh Daniels was once by Seidel and once by Angel Dust. Um, I'm trying to think if that's ever happened before or since. Probably, but I can't think of another example. Um, yeah. Um, Seidel, he went for the shooting star press, but Daniel moves. But Seidel landed on his feet, which is still impressive to me 16 years later. Um so Daniels hit a bridging suplex on Angel Dust right as Acid hit like a curtain call. Is, does Acid have a name for that move? Um, um, Gabe called it his finish, and this is not an example of Seidel. I mean, of Acid being a new wrestler. So Gabe I always known. just say like inverted brainbuster, which I guess is the technical term for the move. But I don't know if he had like an actual. Yeah. The only the only move of his signature move of his I know the name of is the dream sequence, which is actually a tag team sequence of moves he did with a uh, Johnny Cashier and the Backseat Boys, well, which, and, and and the T gimmick. Oh yeah, and the T gimmick. But again, I guess that goes to the point, which again, if if Trent Acid does have the name for the for this move, it goes to the point I made earlier, which is you never know with these announcers. Like guys can hit a finisher, and you're like, is that his finisher? Because they're not telling me. Like, or if they do, they don't know its name. You're like. That's weird. Yep, I agree. Um, but so so right, they both hit those moves, but the ref counted Angel Dust as Daniels was pinning him, didn't count Acid's pin on Seidel, so Daniels won the match. So Acid didn't lose. He had Seidel beat, but he, uh, but he didn't get the win. So he was very upset. Um, but it's funny because this is another loss for the more focused Special K. Um, the, <laughs> the match was short, uh, didn't really have any story. Really, other than the the story of frustrated Trent Acid, um, I guess there were some good spots in there, so it wasn't a total waste. But it wasn't like a good match or anything. Yeah, this is another thing, just middle of the road, where, like you said, there were some good spots, but because it was short and probably maybe it just wasn't quite up to snuff, it wasn't as fun as like a really good like ten minute four corner survival where everyone's just going really nuts, and it just feels like there's a bit more meat on the bone. This felt a little bit in. Like more inconsequential than your normal four-way random undercard spot fest, which is already an inconsequential kind of match on the card. But uh, I did think that Josh Daniels, he did get to at least kind of be interesting where you got three more high spot flying oriented guys and him getting to be the the guy who's just chopping and hitting guys hard. That was a little bit of an interesting dynamic. I thought uh, Angel Dust – he was getting hyped really hard on the commentary on this night, and I think he was having one of his more botchy nights, and Angel Dust already is one of the more botch, botchy guys in general in Ring of Honor. Like, he lost he, he's a like, he's, he's like an old Italian man because he, he he's a botchy guy. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, um, 
But yeah, there's a moment where like he does one of those spots where you're supposed to you grab a headlock and the guy tries to throw you off and you kind of just slide down on your knees. And I don't know if I've ever seen this before. He actually loses the headlock like when he's not supposed to. He like pops out. Um, he also fucks up a tilt a whirl backbreaker shortly after that. So not a great night for him, even though this felt like a night where the commentary was really trying to like spotlight him a bit. Um, you didn't get to see much from Seidel. I thought he looked good as usual in what he did do. He took a crazy bump where, uh, Trent Asset kind of just threw him in the, over his head, like in the air and Seidel landed on his ass on the top turnbuckle and then immediately fell off it to the floor. And it was just like, I haven't seen many guys like taking a spot where you get thrown and then land ass first on the top turnbuckle like that. And I have to imagine that doesn't feel great unless you're really lucky about how your tailbone hits. But Matt Seidel trying to get noticed and yeah, not much to the match. And I guess it's interesting that, um, Trent acid, they still gave him that little out you described where it's a double pin, but only the other guy's pin counts because Trent acid wasn't the legal, legal man. I guess it's interesting that even though it feels like they're burying him on commentary and knowing that he's only around a few more shows, they're still like later we're going to see he gets a promo still. It seems like there is still hope that they can do something with Trent acid. Even though the promo and booking and the commentary all points in the direction of what actually does happen, which is him leaving, which it's just weird. It's like, it's like a storyline, but then what the storyline hints at actually happens, but not which – which you would say, well, that's what storylines are supposed to do. But yeah, but I would say this is a storyline that's about him basically sucking and deciding I'm going to quit, and it happens. But anyway, um, uh, you screwed Trent chant from the crowd from a few people in the crowd maybe not the whole crowd after the match so he still had some fans and that brings us to chad collier and nigel mcginnis scored to the ring by ricky steamboat they defeated bj whitmer and dan moff who were scored to the ring by mick foley in 11 minutes flat when nigel pinned whitmer with a pinning combination after steamboat told him to use his wrestling like prince nana would tell uh jimmy rave to like from think of all the jewels if you win this match but before we get to the match we get to probably what was the much more notable part of this segment which is before the match we get a huge mick foley chant followed by a weaker ricky steamboat chant they're both in the ring uh ricky grabs the mic and he asks the wrestlers to clear out for a second because he wants to talk to mick one-on-one uh, Steamboat at this point, he recaps the challenge that led to the match tonight where, you know, Mick said, hey, how about you take your two of your um, pure wrestling guys? I'll take my two hardcore guys. We'll find out what's the best style. Uh, Steamboat again says he thinks his style of wrestling is better than Mick Foley's. Steamboat reuses his you sure put the icing on the cake line that he used the night before. So clearly Ricky is in love with the icing on the cake line. Uh Ricky says he thinks fully epitomizes garbage wrestling. And in fact, he got an email from the Chicago sanitation department saying that when Foley's neck book, when Foley's next book fails, they'll have a job waiting for him. Foley steamboat. Then at this point started acting like he dropped the sickest burn ever, like making just the goofiest facial expressions, which I have to admit, I laughed at, um, because because you never saw steamboat in that light ever before or since. Yeah, like he told a dad joke is acting like he just did the second sickest burn on like a deaf comedy jam or something. Just like insane. Uh Foley then takes the mic, he gets a big pop. I should note at this point that Steamboat was getting booze for some of his comments on Mick. This crowd's definitely they like Steamboat, but they're definitely more pro Mick than pro uh Rick. 
And it, it, at any point where Steamboat was make, kind of saying something that was making them choose, they were choosing Foley. Uh, Foley says, alert the media. He just heard Steamboat tell a joke. Uh, Mick says it was the first time in his career that Ricky actually said something entertaining. Uh, Mick, though, then put Steamboat over. He points out that in eight, 1989, Ricky Steamboat beat Ric Flair in Chicago in one of the greatest bouts of all time. And he says he that Ricky might be the greatest pure wrestler of all time. He asked the crowd to give Steamboat a big hand. At this point, Foley then says, though, that saying someone that is the greatest pure wrestler of all time is like saying they're the greatest softcore porn actor. They're just not the real deal. So, you know, both these guys reusing some of the material they used the night before with the whole softcore thing here. Um, Mick does continue to retread some of the material from his promo the night before in Dayton, complete with him calling Ricky the softcore dragon. Uh, Mick asks, how long is Ricky going to ride the coattails of a washed-up loser like Ric Flair? Mick gets a big pop for saying that. Ric Flair's mention gets mostly boos. Uh, Steamboat says he knows Flair. He's worked Flair. Mick is is no Ric Flair. Uh, Mick says, that's right. I don't have a banana nose. I don't have horse teeth. I don't look like Barbara Bush and drag. Uh, Steamboat says, that was funny when Terry Funk said that years ago, which I thought was a good line. Foley then says, okay, I'm no Ric Flair because I never kissed Trey, I never kissed Triple H's ass. I've never kissed, carry, I've never carried Batista's bags. I actually say something different once in a while. And because I actually put my body on the line and didn't do anything stupid like this, Mick at this point does a flare flop to some laughs and a pop. Uh, Mick says he never stuck a needle in his ass to keep his tits from flopping in the wind. He never compared his genitals to a Disney theme park ride. But most of all, he's no Ric Flair because he knew his time was up and he stepped aside for younger wrestlers. And he says that Steamboat did the same, but not Flair, who has stuck around for another extra 15 years. Mick says he's here to introduce the new kings of hardcore, Moff and Whitmer. And they're going to find out what the better style is right now. Um, Matt, before we talk about the match, I guess we should talk about the promo. Um, uh, how about you just say, before I say what I thought about, what, what do you say first? I will note, regardless of what we think about this, you do have to admit, Matt, the crowd, I think, was going nuts for Mick Foley. They were kind of eating out of, I thought they were eating out of the palm of his hand, everything he said here. It's just one of those things that only worked in the time that it happened. Um, you know, and probably mostly for the live crowd. Like, it was cool to see Mick Foley and Dricky Steamboat do promos on each other at that time. You know, it doesn't have the novelty so many years later that it did then. So what we're left with is the content. And the content did not work for me. I didn't buy Mick Foley making fun of the idea of, like, good wrestlers. You know what I mean? Like, that that whole concept, like, that if you're just a pure wrestler, you're soft core. Like, that doesn't strike me as something Mick Foley would say or think. You know what I mean? It didn't yeah, seem and like, true to him. Oh, sorry. I- I was just going to say, Mick Foley, like, some of his favorite matches that he described in his book were, like, versus Shawn Michaels and Sting. Like, they weren't, like, my favorite matches, the King of the Death matches. His favorite matches were, like, straight-up Rick Steamboat-ass regular wrestling matches. He's also just a respectful guy who's, like, not like that, you know? Like, and it just didn't seem true to Mick Foley. Steamboat obviously was having fun, got to do a little bit. But he obviously, promos are not his thing. Like, he did a lot of repeats from the night before. Um you know, when, when I just, I like, I think like, just like, I was more disappointed with mixed stuff. Cause like, you know, like he just, it just like when he starts going like, I'm, you know, I'm not Ric Flair. Cause I never kissed Triple H's ass or carried Batista's bags. It's like, 
you're kind of putting over WWE storylines right now. You know, like you're not cutting some edgy promo. Like that's what a wrestler in WWE would have said to Ric Flair at that time on TV. You know what I mean? Like that you're just a stooge for Triple H. Also, did Foley never kiss Triple H's ass? Triple H's ass? I feel like he's at least a little bit kissed Triple H's ass. Um, the uh, obviously the the steroid comment that's a little bit that's a little bit darker. Um, but I, I don't know. Like this is just it just doesn't work. You know. I, you know, it's, you gotta judge it by what it meant to be at the time, and it worked at the time. It doesn't work for me now at all. I just don't buy this concept that these two guys would be feuding over, like, which style of wrestling is better. And I just don't buy, I didn't, just Mick didn't strike me as being himself here, which is what you'd want, you know, for it to really be a memorably, memorable angle that holds up. You want him to be true to his character, and I don't think this was true to McFoley's character. Yeah, I agree. Um, we've gone to this a few times now that we think that we haven't been a big fan of the Steamboat uh, Foley angle just because, yeah, it doesn't feel true. And I that's especially telling with Foley because Foley's a guy he wrote in his first autobiography, something he, he noted that he did, which was often he would usually try and find like a germ of real emotion in his promos, in his feuds, like he would try and find something that he really felt and then just exaggerate it or push it in a different direction. And so for a guy that was kind of known for trying to make his promos feel at least somewhat authentic and putting his own history and his feelings into things, like these really feel in a lot of ways inauthentic. Like the part of it, I will say, that does feel authentic is when he switches from talking about hardcore versus pure wrestling and Steamboat to calling down Flair, you can tell like that's coming from a place of real frustration that right. Foley at this point in his career was not happy. Like the tone is completely different. Right. They, Where, they it, did not like each other at this point in time, for sure. You know, like, like the insults I described, they just feel like they're never ending. Like he has probably has like a notepad with 20 more backstage of things he would say about Ric Flair. But like carrying, but then, but carrying Batista's bags, like that's a corny insult. Like, yeah, he's like, he's, he's in, he's his protege, like on the TV show. Like, come on. <laughs> But but and you you know you I thought it was interesting that you focused on those because I thought I thought the ones you would point out were the other ones because he's talking about stuff like um you know I got out of the business when it was my time you know he had already gone back on his retirement and granted it was to have a great match with Randy Orton that really was probably Randy Orton's career highlight but Mick Foley would continue to come back sporadically Mick Foley's for years. also Mick Foley's also much 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 younger than Rick, well not much 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 he's younger than Ric Flair by a decent amount. Like that does that does make some difference, right? No, that that that's true. But and even when he says that Flair stuck around, like he said, he said fifteen years. And remember, this was two thousand four. So he's saying that Rick Flair should have retired in nineteen eighty nine. That was maybe his most celebrated year. That'd be like going out. That, that he wanted him to pull a Seinfeld, Matt. He wanted him to go out on top. Like, I mean, yeah. Well, that's what, the, the, the one thing I don't think Rick, that Mick Foley really thought that. You know, like that. That's another thing. I'm. I don't think Mick Foley really thought that Ric Flair should have retired 15 years before 2004. You know, like so yeah. that, that's another strike against this. So yeah, like you said, like we've been going on all these. I, I thought very charismatic deliveries, especially from Foley. I, I, I even like Ricky's kind of awkward dad babyface charm more than I think a lot of people reading reviews of this stuff. But yeah, just the, the content isn't really working. But Matt, this actually worked for a lot of people because let's go before the match to the reaction to this promo. I was shocked 
at the Raves. This got from some people. We'll go to Wade Keller first, who wrote, The Mick Foley-Ricky Steamboat verbal exchange on the latest Ring of Honor home video release from October 16th in Chicago was one of the best 10-minute stretches of wrestling mic work I've seen all year. Steamboat was as good as I've ever seen him, really loosening up and having fun with his square persona of the past. Foley's comments on Flair were delivered with a perfect cadence where they didn't just come across as overly mean-spirited, just truthful, even while obviously trying to get revenge for Flair's comments about him and his book. Um, order the video or DVD at ringofhonorwrestling.com. It contains a very good wrestling card, too. Um, going to the PW Torch, uh, elsewhere in the newsletter, they got comments from Gabe Sapolsky about these promos. Uh, Sapolsky says, in my opinion, Mick Foley is the greatest promo in the wrestling, in, in, in the wrestling history. That's a weird phrase on a true genius level. When you are fortunate enough to work with a talent like that, you give him a rough direction of what needs to be accomplished in the promo and where it is going. And you let him come up with the rest. And then you sit back and enjoy the brilliance in the ring. And then finally, Dave Meltzer and the observer wrote this. Okay. This wasn't Dave review. I thought Matt, this was a line Dave wrote that made me laugh. Dave wrote based on a live report. He hadn't seen the show yet. Foley then said that unlike Flair, he knew when the time was up and got out of the business so that younger and better wrestlers could succeed. And then he pointed to Moff and Whitmer. Dave then writes, well, he killed this point when he pointed at them. And I thought, wow, that is a, a, a harsh burn from Dave Meltzer on Moth and Whitmer, which it's not necessarily untrue, but like, I wonder how much Moth and Whitmer David even watched at this point in his life. Yeah, that's, it's just, you know, I don't know, man. It's, you could be a little bit nicer than that. There's a, you didn't have to be that harsh. Yeah, like, I agree that, like, saying that these are the new generation, yeah, that does hurt your credibility a bit, but it's not like they're terrible. Harley Race agreed. <laughs> as Mark Nolte would remind us over and over during the match, which I guess we should talk about. But really, honestly, the match does feel in a lot of ways like an afterthought to the promo. And it, the match really – it is a match. It does go long enough, has enough wrestling it to be a match. But it does feel more like a promo, I mean an angle than a match. Basically, it's two matches. The first half of the match is a straight-up wrestling match. Uh, Collier and Nigel dominate the wrestling part, as you might expect. Um, I thought they looked fairly good as a team. In particular, I liked that Dan Moff, he countered an arm lock when he hoisted Chad Collier into a slam position, and Collier still held onto the arm lock. And then Nigel ran in and broke it up by hitting a crossbody onto Collier while Moff was holding onto him. Like, I thought that was a really cool moment. But that was basically the highlight, just a lot of arm work. Then the Carnage crew run in. They try and attack Vic Foley a little bit, but they kind of don't do much. And then they run in the ring and basically yell at him from in the ring. Um, the match just gets thrown out because they're attacking people. Double DQ, I guess another example of the new Ring of Honor taking the rules more seriously again. But th at this point, uh, Mick Foley restarts the match. He decides it's going to be a hardcore match now. The pure wrestling guys still control with their pure wrestling for a short time. But then there's a nice spot where uh, BJ Whitmer pulls – he's in an arm lock, but he pulls the guy that's arm locking him. I forget which of the two it was into the path of the other guy who's doing a flying elbow from the top. 
that lets them make the hot tag. From there, they ball over, brawl all over the crowd. We get some chair shots, etc. Moff and Whitmer dominate the hardcore part. Finally, Ricky Steamboat comes back out because he had chased the car to the back with chairs. Because he was so out. mad that they had ruined a good wrestling match. That's what they said. He was mad that they, the Carnage crew ruined the pure wrestling match because there was so much <laughs> wrestling going on. And I, I, I forget if they kind of acknowledge it. I think they kind of reference it, but they never played up. But like, here's Ricky Steamboat, the guy who is about pure wrestling is better than hardcore wrestling. And what does he do when someone ruins his good wrestling match? He grabs a steel chair and chases them. So like, the hardcore wrestling came in handy when, when it was time for that. But anyway, um, hardcore match, Moff and Whitmer dominate. Finally, Steamboat makes his way back to the ring. He gets on the mic, like I wrote, like I said before, like he's Prince Nana, you know, trying to hype up Jimmy Rave in his recent gimmick where Rave is always on the ropes and then Nana's mic work gets him to make a comeback he goes nigel you know use your pure wrestling and it gets which i felt was kind of corny because nigel at that point immediately does he does a little british reversal sequence gets into a pinning combination wins the match out of nowhere it was, it was, uh, I guess it was sort of like an obi-wan kind of thing right like use the force yeah it's always such a goofy moment but um it wasn't boring, but it also wasn't amazing. And it definitely, it's another thing also where it felt like these guys, the wrestlers, were basically just pawns in the Mick Foley steamboat angle. So in that sense, they're not really getting much of a rub. I mean, it's just, it's just a thing. It's just a continuation of an angle I'm not that huge into. Matt, I mean, did you see more about, did you think more of this match than I did? Or were you kind of like me where you're just like, so overwhelmed by just how much of this was about that angle. Yeah, no, it wasn't. I mean, it was a mess, I thought, a little bit. I just, I'm just not into this whole thing. I thought Nigel looked good. Like, you know, I think he's always he always looks good like in what he does. I do like that he ended up winning the hardcore match with, like, the Artful Dodger stuff. Like, I think that, that, is, that is a fun ending. Um, I do think it's funny that the crowd chanted bullshit after that, because I'm just like, wait, how is that bullshit? <laughs> he just won. He won the match. Um, but... Um, yeah, I don't know. I it's there was a lot of you know it just it the, the the hardcore part of the match just felt like aimless hitting, which a lot of these matches do. Um, maybe that's why um, Meltzer dissed Moff and Whitmer, but you know Moff throwing a garbage can at Collier, Whitmer hitting uh, McGinnis on the top of the head with the chair, you know, which is you know always um, you know Nigel likes to take shots to the head. That's the thing about his career. Um, and so he did that here too. But it was it was almost like battle royal type offense for a bit. Like they were just sort of like hitting each other and like choking each other in the corner and like doing this and that. Um, so there just wasn't that much. Um, you know, a couple of cool spots. Exploder onto the chair on Collier and then that artful Dodger finish. Um, no, the angle really doesn't work for me. Again, like I, that doesn't mean it's bad. Like it just – it was an angle that worked in a very specific time and place and doesn't work later. Which is yeah, whatever you know, it is what it is. Yeah, the fans definitely liked seeing those guys live, and obviously the newsletters liked the at least the way like loved the promos, and the fans on this night loved the promos. And I guess I have to remind myself that at the time after uh, Flair put out his autobiography and trashed Foley, that was like something people were really interested in for a while. The idea that Mick Foley and Ric Flair were having this really public. Feud, which I feel like that happens now in wrestling every three months from two wrestlers. But thanks, thanks to then, Twitter, thanks to Twitter, you didn't need a book. You don't need a book for it anymore. Yeah, exactly. Back then, it was more of a novelty. Now it's just oh, I, oh, I get it. Pun intended, right? Novelty. <laughs> 
Um, but th- there were a couple. Of I wish com- I was that clever. There were a couple of commentary things. Um, mainly one when Nolte was like at the beginning, at the end of that promo, where Nolte goes, "I haven't seen Steamboat that intense since he bounced Lex Luger's steroided ass all over Chicago." I'm like, Jesus, Mark. Like, what is you're just letting it all out, huh? Really he, get- he has some odd grudges. Like- yeah, he's, he has some. He has. He had some anger. Yeah. Him. Um, and then at the end, Steamboat like kind of knelt down to, um, or he actually um, went over to Foley and he said, "We've got one, and you've got goose egg," because he's real cool <laughs> and he calls zero goose egg. But that'll come into, that'll come into play a little bit later, I guess. And one other thing I noticed from the time reading, like the observers leading up to this, uh, I always find this interesting because so many wrestlers speak of how great an influence Steamboat was on them in his, in his brief time with Ring of Honor backstage. And Dave wrote about at the time a little bit in The Observer. He writes, Steamboat's main role in Ring of Honor is as a coach for all the younger wrestlers. Among the, less, the lessons he was talking about were the art of interfering behind the ref's back. Because so much of the crew grew up on ECW where Paul Heyman never bothered with distracting the refs and the refs just stood, stood there and just never DQ'd anyone and allowed anything to happen. He also tried to emphasize more logical kickouts in that everyone always kicks out at 2.75 and he thinks, dependent, dependent on the severity of the move, you should be doing more kicking out at one and even sometimes before the one count so that later in the match when you do the 2.75s they'll mean more so i thought that was really interesting for a couple reasons one because the whole point about the crew grew up on ecw i think gabe either on this show or the last show said basically that word for word so you know who like was talking to dave about ricky steamboat here it was gabe obviously because it's his words but also i think probably like the refs we're we're definitely seeing the refs rulings being taken more seriously on this starting with this double shot we'll see how long that lasts and we're seeing more the interference being done better which i think steamboat's complaint that's right in front of the refs was a complaint we were having but the one thing i guess we'll have to notice more because i haven't noticed it yet have you been noticing any like one or two count kickouts like rather than just in, the always kick out right before three in the main event there were some but i i've actually thought maybe i just would you know thought from later things, but I, I always thought the ROH guys actually were decent about that. Whereas it was more WWE that was always like, you know, you know, two and three quarters. Um, but I did notice some earlier kickouts in the, uh, in the punk versus Joe match. I will say that. But I, I continue to emphasize, because I think he's a great example for older veterans, which is so many veterans, they're either, they go like one of two extremes. They're either like, well, I don't understand everything these kids are doing, but hey, the kids, I don't want to be seen as out of touch, so I'm going to agree with everything they do. Or you go the Jim Cornette route where you just get bitter and think you, you don't, you're resistant to all change. I think the thing people keep saying Steamboat did so well back then was he would not try and change them like fundamentally what they were, but he would do more things like this, like around the edges, like the detail work, which – Take uh, the stuff that you do, but just make it better, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and and I think there's that's probably a reason. That's probably not a coincidence why he is so beloved by these wrestlers from this era, because he wasn't like telling them that what they did fundamentally was shitty. It was more just, yeah, like you just said, here's how you can make it better. Here's how you can tweak things, which is, I think, a great way to be a coach. But yep. Um, moving on after the match, some fans applaud, many others boo. Like you, Matt said. I'm glad you remembered the goose egg thing because I wrote in my notes, Steamboat gets on, on the mic and tells Foley he's up one to nothing. So I missed uh, – I, I just – I didn't 
I didn't preserve the goose egg, Matt, so I'm glad you did. Um, Next, we're at intermission backstage with Dave Prezak, who is on this night. He's all cleaned up. He's in a nice suit, and he looks very sharp. He's joined by a bummed-out Trent Acid. Uh, Trent says he feels like an outcast here in Ring of Honor, and he doesn't think he can stand it much longer. Uh, spoiler, he won't have to stand it much longer. Uh, so um, not much. This. He also says he's going to snap if it doesn't stop, but th- th- we never get to the point in ROH where they show him snapping. Yeah. Uh, again, I don't know if there was larger plans that were aborted, or and this was just a coincidence. But it is continues to be interesting that they're basically doing somewhat of a storyline, saying that like Trenessa might be on his way out, and then he's really on his way out. But that brings us to the Carnage crew of uh, Logan Devito defeated Davy Andrews and T.J. Dalton in four minutes twenty two seconds when Devito pins Andrews after a second rope spike pile driver. Um, Matt, we finally got to see, we didn't get to see it in the first half. This is, I guess now the real first substantial match, a ring of honor rookie is student has ever gotten in ring of honor. What'd you think of it? Um, the carnage crew, I guess, give those two guys a little bit more than I maybe would have expected. It was still just a squash match, but you know, they, they do get to hit a couple of, um, a couple of moves. Like they do, a. uh, a double backdrop on DeVito and like a double pancake spot on Loke. Um, somehow, even though the Carnage crew hit a doomsday device on Dalton, that doesn't end the match. Um, and Andrews gets like a hot tag and looks kind of okay. He has lots of fire, but he has some hesitancy doing the moves, which is pretty understandable. It's a second match ever, they said. Um, so can't really hold that against him. But, you know, then Logan DeVito, they hit the Carnage Plex, the Splash Mountain Neckbreaker, Spike Pile Driver, uh, and it's a squash match. So, yeah, it's a squash match. With what's to say about it? It was a squash match. <laughs> um, yeah, like, like you said, uh, they got a little more offense than you'd think, but they, it was mostly a squash match. And like you said, I think Davey Andrews, you, you don't know what to expect from him because it's his second match, but he was also praised as, you know, the the – the top student and he does have like you said great fire like and that you would think a lot of times usually wrestlers get the mechanics first and everything else second but that was kind of a strength here was he just looked like he was really showing good intensity but i think we're going to probably have to talk about this a lot through the next year or two of ring of honor but this the way ring of honor handled students it was just i think they got a raw deal because it's really hard to be starting wrestling and have no in-ring experience and you're already getting thrown into a company where it's all about selling you like the absolute best on the indies. And because of that, I feel like Ring of Honor was hesitant to ever give these guys a chance, which if you're just trying to put, put on the best show possible, I completely understand that. But the problem is then why even have these guys on in the first place then? Like it, it's kind of like a no-win scenario. The guys don't get much experience. They don't really come off as stars, but they also aren't it's just a weird thing and you see a lot of these rookies will get these three minute four minute matches and they'll actually become better known more for their gimmicks than for their match quality yeah i mean you know our um our friend shane hagedorn uh from an honorable honorable mention he actually becomes you know pretty successful over the years um in terms of he, he develops a character way before the other uh students do he um you know, he gets involved in bigger and bigger storylines, you know, and he's involved in some memorable stuff. But, you know, the, the, it's it's like in some ways it's they put you in a position to help you do that because you're with these, you know, top guys. But in another way, like you said, it's almost like 
they're giving you an uphill battle because you're fighting for time in a company that has all these like absolute top wrestlers in the world in it. And how are you going to compare? And it's not like you're ever, it's not like they ever put the students in long matches with these guys so they can get better. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's a, it's a, it's a tough position to be in. I'd actually be curious uh, to hear more from, from guys like Shane about what that, you know, what that seems like in hindsight. I'm sure at the time it was kind of like just a whirlwind. Yeah. Because it's funny, like, cause even Davey Andrews here, he's wearing the all black trunks with nothing adoring them almost like the Japanese, like new Japan young lion thing. Except when you think about it, new Japan, they make those guys, you know, work in the dojo for a long time and then just wrestle mostly each other or get squashed by stars. But for like a year or two before they even then let them do anything more than like basic moves, then they send them on an excursion to another country for a while. And then only then do they start bringing them back. And even you think about all the wrestlers in Ring of Honor, whether it be Danielson, Loki, Daniels, any of those guys, none of those guys started in Ring of Honor as rookies. They, they, they got good on their local scenes and then were brought into Ring of Honor and pushed immediately, you know, right from the start of the company. And it's just, I feel sad for these guys, even though some of them had, you know, decent careers as, as different kinds of figures like Shane Hagador and, you and, know, like and managers. Rhett Titus, some of their careers aren't over yet. Also, that's worth noting. Yeah, it, it's just it's i i feel like it was not the best way for these guys to come to come up you know it probably wouldn't better if after the ring of honor school they said look you guys we want you guys to work nothing but other places for a couple years and then when you're ready we'll 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 bring it in with a push like you're just like anyone else that we'd put ring in rather than immediately they're treated just almost like uh the women wrestlers like they're treated like a novelty you know, but yeah, a lot, a lot of they rounded out a lot of the pre-shows for a long time, yeah, exactly. or, or the or the first match after intermission, which gets three minutes. You know, one of those. Yeah, um, but like I said, I, I have more thoughts. I almost feel like saving them because I'm sure we're going to see a lot more of the rookies. So we it's have gonna be... many, many, many more shows yeah. where this will be a topic of conversation. Yeah, I'm sure we'll have to go over this a lot. So after the match for the second straight night, I noted DeVito screams a promo into the held, handheld cam that isn't used. So we don't get the actual promo. We just see from the, like the hard cam that he's screaming directly, I think, into Shane Hagedorn, who was working the ringside cam, his handheld. Uh, Loke then gets on the mic and announces that Ricky Steamboat better watch his back. So they're playing that up. Up next, we have third last match of the night. Gen- and the, really the first match of the show to get a good amount of, of uh, ring time. Generation next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong defeats the Rottweilers of Homicide and Rocky Romero in 17 minutes, 27 seconds, when Evans pins Romero after he hits the 630 splash. Uh, Matt. I think you should go. The last match wasn't much to speak of, and I, I think you should get to do this match first next, especially because I think we both liked it. But I think you probably liked it maybe from just the little bit we talked about this before that you liked it even more than me. What what do you think about this match? I thought this was a quite good athletic tag team match. Um, I, you know, I thought I actually thought that Homicide and Romero had a better match together than the. Havana Pitbulls have had an ROH. I don't know if you thought something similar, but oh, absolutely, yeah. Like just like, but you know, like it was interesting because it's you know in most promotions it's pretty hard to do a heel versus heel match, right? Because like, who do you cheer for? But in this case, it's like they the crowd sort of treated it more like a babyface versus babyface match, which is um, helpful because um, crowds cheer babyfaces and they don't really they don't really have to worry about booing anyone. Um, you know, they just, they do a lot of good athletic stuff. You know, Evans does a tope cone helo. 
um, but like with an Evan style flip right off the bat onto homicide. So it's not like homicide's usual tumble. It's like a, it's a much like weirder angle tumble, but still a tope con hilo. Um, and it's all action until it settles into, um, a regular tag match. But, you know, all the high impact stuff, it sort of works here, like, because they don't really have that face heel story to tell. So they just should just, like, kind of hit each other. Um, Nolte says this was the first match in a while for Homicide with no issue, so we're seeing him wrestle more than we have in a while. But, like, he had that match against Nigel McGuinness a couple shows earlier that was a total wrestling match. And the match against Punk, I wouldn't say, was, like, a brawl. You know, that was more of a wrestling match, right? So Yeah, I, think- I mean... He used a, a foreign object, but it was basically just a balls-to-the-wall 17-minute wrestling match. Which is sort of what this kind of is, too. Um, yeah. You know, the Rottweilers, they do get the heat on Roderick Strong for a while. And then Evan gets in. He does some offense. He does, like, a you know a vertical suplex on Homicide. Quickly tags out. Um, so this is when uh, Strong, he, like, he does that thing where he lifts Evans by the leg. Which like so Evan sort of like jumps off of his hand and like does a flip splash onto Homicide. I forget if they had done that before in their previous tag team matches. They had at least yeah. once or twice. This was becoming like I think that was basically other than the Ode to the Bulldogs. That was like their first regular double team they came up with. Yeah, they also did a spot where where Roderick Strong sort of like lawn darted Evans into Homicide in the corner. I always enjoy that where Strong like uses Evans as a weapon. I yeah. I, I definitely like that. Um, then they sort of then Generation Next takes over. They hit a, um, you know, they they kind of on Homicide. They get a Boston Crab on Homicide, and Homicide does the most interesting move toward the ropes I've ever seen. So usually when you get someone in a Boston Crab, they move away from the person putting them in the crab, right toward the ropes. Homicide pushed towards Strong, and he pushed Strong into the ropes to get to the uh, to get to the ropes. Have you ever seen that before? No, I never have. It's very weird. Um, but I thought, you know, it's, it's always fun to see something new, even if it's not a major part of the match. Um, but so, you know, Homicide hits a big DDT. Romero does like a camel clutch. Uh, and Strong breaks it up with like a loud chop to Romero's back. Um, so no one really gets the heat for too, too long, um, which makes, again, makes sense because there are no faces. Um, but Evans does get worked over for a few minutes. Um, and Romero kicks the crap out of him and slaps him. And the crowd loves that. Um, Romero and Homicide, they do like a Boston Crab, Camel Clutch, simultaneous combination. Um, then Homicide, this is a cool sequence. So Homicide hits an Alabama slam on Jack Evans. Then he slingshots Evans into Romero without let going of, letting go of his legs once. Romero slaps him, who, and then he falls back over Homicide's knee. And then Romero comes over off the top with like a knee to Evans. I thought that was a really cool, like seamless little sequence. Um, and then at another point, Homicide and Romero, they take Evans, they just lift him over their heads, and they just chuck him over the top rope into the guardrail. Like, that was wild to me. Like, they threw him all the way from the ring into the guardrail, and they just, like, no control. They're just, like, psh, throw him out there. Like, almost like Bam Bam Bigelow with Spike Dudley, but it's two guys who are much smaller than Bam Bam Bigelow. Um, <laughs> you know? Um, it's like the fun size version of that spot. Yeah. Um so they do the ode to the Bulldogs off of Romero onto Homicide uh, for two. Homicide comes back with a low blow because you need that in ROH, as we've said, and a back rake. And then the and then uh, the Rottweilers do like a Steiner style, like super bulldog off the top rope. And Romero gets two on Roderick for that. Um, 
Uh, at one point, um, Homicide hits a pile driver on Strong. Evan spin kicks Homicide. And at this point, it's like they, they're really doing a lot of focus on the legal man. Um, and it's kind of confusing who it is, but that'll come into play for the finish because um, Homicide, he double underhooks Evans off the top. And then he hits a tiger driver on Evans. Romero covers, but Strong pulls him off. Then homicides. Then homicide lariats Evans out of his boots, but the ref won't count because homicide isn't legal. So that's where that comes into play. Like they really wanted to push the whole legal man thing. Um, so then homicide gets tagged in. He splashes Roderick for two, and I think at this point it looks almost like they, they lose a little bit of momentum. Like they kind of like are not sure what to do. I don't know if you got that sense. Like at the last, like maybe like three minutes of the match, they sort of were like a little bit lost after things had been going so smoothly. But, um, but strong hit his double knees to homicides gut. He did his, he does his old, like over like splash mountain flip face plant hold on Romero. Like, like it was his, his original finisher. Like, I don't know how to explain it. He gets him in like the splash mountain position. Then he like spins him downward and drops, um, so then Homicide lariats Roderick out of the ring. Evans hits a 360 on Romero and pins him. Gabe notes that Evans wasn't the legal man, but I think he was. I'm not positive about that. But it just shows that it's, it must be really hard for referees to really keep track of a legal man in one of these types of matches. Um, I thought the match had some storytelling gaps, but I just thought it had good action. Um, and I thought Evans and Strong are just such a good team together. And uh, the Rottweilers did a good job of holding the match together, so I thought it was good. Like I, I would say, this was a good match with a with a lot of good spots. Not perfect, but good. Yeah, if I had to give this like a star rating, which I don't do for a lot of matches, I would say like a three and a half, maybe three and three quarter, somewhere in that range. Oh probably yeah, so, three so, and a half. so we liked it very on a very similar level, I would say. Yeah, like it's a fun like this is a tag match you're happy to have on a wrestling show. It's fun. It's not something you go out of your way to see, but it's a fun match. Um, I felt like Homicide had a hell of a weekend on this double shot because the night before was the uh, the CM Punk match, and, and when I mentioned this. Match being similar to the last one, you mentioned that too, that this was kind of the, the similar. Yeah, I, I really do think this is kind of like the tag version of the last of, – of his match with Punk the night before because they're both I think around 17 minutes and they're both just kind of – they don't have a lot of story either of them. I think this had even less story than the Punk match, but they're just go, 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 kind of never lit up other than maybe like you said, maybe there's a little bit of a of a little – bump in the road for a second but for the most part just really good fun action that just right from the get-go that never lets up where it's not where you're ever going just out of my mind this is the best i've ever seen but you're just like this is fun and it's gonna keep being fun the whole way through and i thought this was a weekend where we we've always talked about how homicide is like one of the most versatile wrestlers of his generation and he can do so many great styles. I feel like this weekend is probably the best example we've seen of him just doing like the go, go, go kind of modern for the era indie style where sometimes I feel like some people feel like homicide isn't, that isn't his strength, but I feel like here he's just doing cool moves and working a real fast pace and he's as good as anyone else in these matches. And like, it's just another example of how he could basically do anything on a really high level. I thought the others, I thought while well, everyone did their roles and was good in this match, I thought the other star of it was Jack Evans. I just, I love Jack Evans. I'm probably going to continue to say that. I, I think his, his bumping here, like 
his I almost want to say selling, but it's not his facial expressions. It's his it's his body language. Like when he takes bumps, the guys look like they're really killing him. And he no one in Ring of Honor or maybe many people in wrestling does like the dead fish body language after a bump the way um, Jack Evans does. He just goes limp on a lot of big spots. Like he's just dead. Like his soul has left his body. And I think he, and does when, he does he still do that? I don't really notice that as much from him these days. That, I'm not that, sure. type, that type of selling. Yeah, I'm not sure. Honestly, there isn't much recent Jack Evans to watch. I think they said, like, he, he's going to wrestle um, QT Marshall on AEW Dark, they said, next week. And I think they said that's his second match this year because of the COVID. So, if, yeah, I, I haven't seen much Jack, recent Jack Evans. But, yeah, I'll have to pay attention to that next time I do. But definitely at this point, he was really willing to just – go almost over the top in making everyone look like they were killing him. Um, I, I thought that like the, uh, the Rottweilers got a really good reaction for beating down um, Evans. And I even like Rocky Romero, who I think mostly just stuck to his usual stuff, which hasn't really been thrilling us, got a good reaction. And I think that's in part because, you know, Jack Evans looks great when you, he makes everything you do look like it's killing him. Uh, all the double teams you said I thought were great. You know, Strong and Evans continue to really develop good chemistry. And I, I think one of the things that makes Evans and Strong great is so many wrestlers these days, they're like super well-rounded. But in some ways, that makes them less interesting. Like I feel like if you took every style and every attribute wrestlers would have could have, most wrestlers nowadays focus on being like a 7 or 8 out of 10 at almost everything where I feel like more wrestlers in this era and especially a guy like Jack Evans, it's like Jack Evans is a 10 out of 10 on some attributes and he's like a three out of 10 on others. And I think 10, what makes 10, out of, 10 out of 10 on looks. Yeah, yeah, definitely. As we've proven the most handsome member of generation next, we, we, we did the science and figured that out, but he should, also, he, should, he should have gotten the Sean Spears push, <laughs> but also like, you know, great high flyer, great bumper, stuff like that. But also, you know, doesn't have he, – he's not the kind of guy where he could realistically do a big brawl or do power moves or stuff like that or even do a lot of really intricate mat wrestling. But the great thing about the strong Evans tag team is it feels like every one of Jack Evans' strengths is one of Roderick Strong's weaknesses and vice versa. And that's what makes them great. It's like a team where they just complement each other. They, they slot into each other's gaps so well, you know – it's great, and I feel like now that wrestlers are more well-rounded, we're seeing fewer and fewer teams like that than we did in this era, and I really like teams like that. So anyway, just a really fun match. My two flaws, Matt, my two big flaws in this match were there's one point where Roderick Strong gets the hot tag to Jack Evans where he does something I hate, which is after he gets beaten down for a fairly extended period of time, he just kind of – while the guy has him in a headlock, just bull rushes his corner and makes a tag. Like, he doesn't really make a comeback. He just is like, well, it's time to make a hot tag. And he does it. And I hate when you really get beaten up for a while. You should have something more dramatic than that. And the other thing I've complained about that they do in this match again is they do probably the most impressive spot on the entire show and the most impressive spot they can do, which is the old Ode to the Bulldogs where – um Strong has an opponent in the torture rack. Jack Evans jumps on the guy while he's in the torture rack and then does like a flipping spot. Sometimes he would do different kinds of spots. 
sometimes a moonsault, sometimes even like a Phoenix splash off the guy onto the other opponent who's lying on the mat. And they just do it in the middle of the match for a near fall. And it's not even like one of the final near falls. And in fact, I think in this match, Matt, like it felt like seconds later, the Rottweilers were back in control and doing like a doomsday bulldog. Like, yes, it, it was, it was seconds later. Yes. Yeah. It, it's insane that they just like, that they don't realize, like, every time they do that spot, it gets the biggest reaction of the whole match. Like, they don't realize that this should be their, this is a match they won. They very easily could have made this the finish. Like, it just feels like, guys, like, you got gold here. It's almost like you don't even know that you've got gold right here. Yeah, like, I guess they wanted to do something more convoluted with the legal man controversy and homicide shoving Roderick out of the ring. But yes, you're right. It should have either been the finish or like just right before the finish. Yeah, or the near fall. Yeah, right before the finish. Yeah. But other than those comments, I mean, still fun all action match. And I, and I agree with you when you say basically in a weird way, the best Havana Pitbulls match is the one that only has had half the Havana Pitbulls in it because honestly and this is nothing against Ro- uh, Ricky Reyes this is more in favor of Homicide it's just you put Homicide in there it makes a world of difference but they are going to I think on the very next show there's going to be a Havana Pitbulls versus Strong and Evans match for the tag team titles so it'll be interesting to compare the two it definitely and, and yeah this match very simple logical booking where they earn a tag Title shot because they beat half of the tag champs so in a tag match. So um, and, and, and strong and and Romero, even though he's a heel, is just like, all right, motherfucker, you got your shot. Like that's basically what he says. So, yeah. um, you know, he's a, even in even the Rottweilers are people of honor. <laughs> yeah. So right after the match, Homicide gets on the mic. He tells them to give Generation Next a hand. They deserve it. Homicide then says, a lot of people think the Rottweilers are bad guys, but they believe in the code of honor. Homicide then asked for handshakes, and I thought Generation Next looked a little bit like goobers actually believing him because they go for handshakes and they, of course, immediately get attacked. I think I think, Evans, I think it's okay for those two guys to look like goobers, though, like yeah, in, in their roles in the you know in the promotion at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got a point. Um, Jack Evans gets hit with the cop killer. He sells it again. Uh, great selling. If you watch how he takes the cop killer, his body goes rigid for a second, and then he lets it go limp. Like, it's just great physical selling of the cop killer. Uh, Romero sends a quick shout to his man, Jay Smokes. Again, Julius Smokes was not on this double shot in the Midwest. As Roderick carries Jack to the back, Rocky Romero on the mic, like Matt said, says, you want your title shot? You got your fucking title shot. And simple as that. Got to build to the next show. Homicide says, Chicago, I fucking hate you all. Thank you very much. And then he asked the fans to kiss their asses. And doesn't he say, he, kiss, not- doesn't he say kiss our Puerto Rican asses? Even though, as far as I know, Rocky Romero is not Puerto Rican. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure if I heard that or not, and I'm not – I mean, all I know is at the end, Matt, the crowd chants, fuck you. So we finally managed to get some heel heat on a night, like you said, where – you know, the fans are into both these teams, even though they're both heel teams. Um, semi-main event, I quit match. Alex Shelley defeated Jimmy Jacobs in 16 minutes, 47 seconds, when he made Jacobs say, I quit in the Border City stretch. Um, I thought this was a high, like, this was good. This was like a three-and-a-half-star match. I didn't quite like it. Quite, it was a little bit under the last match for me. I felt like... I felt like the effort was better than the match. I felt like Jimmy Jacobs was giving like 
a 10 out of 10 effort. Like he, he was treating this match like this was a big match for his career. And while I don't think Alex Shelley was slacking in any way, I felt like he was just giving like a, a regular Alex Shelley performance. But I felt like Jimmy Jacobs, he was taking a lot of punishment. He was bumping big. When he fired up, whenever it was his time for a comeback in this match, he had this real fury where Alex Shelley didn't really have that emotion. Although I guess you could argue that could be part of the story because the whole story of this match is Alex Shelley keeps beating Jimmy Jacobs and Jimmy Jacobs keeps chasing Alex Shelley. So I guess you could say, well, Alex Shelley's over it and Jimmy Jacobs really has a, you know, a chip on his shoulder about this. But anyway, the match is one of those I quit matches that is more of a hardcore match than a like submission match. It, it's a lot of weapons. Jimmy Jacobs pulls out a spike and the spike gets used against him. He bleeds. He ends up pulling a second spike at one point from his uh, boots to free himself when he's duct taped to uh, the ring post. Uh, there's a candlestick gets used. Um, all sorts of stuff like that. You know, lots of... Um, uh, Jacobs gets a cross, takes a cross-legged brainbuster on a chair laid between two open chairs. So, I guess one of my problems with this match, other than that maybe difference in intensity, was it's an I quit match where a lot of the I quit moments weren't like submissions. It was more a guy hits a big spot, like uh, maybe even a spot you'd see in a regular match of theirs, and then the ref just asks, "Do you quit?" And I feel like there's no excitement in that because in an I quit match you know it's going to be a big spot that ends it like you know Jimmy Jacobs is not just going to take like the shell shock out of nowhere and go yeah I quit I can't take this anymore like you know but yet and when, in a match in a, you might buy some of those spots as near false and there's this tension and excitement of going one two and you're you know waiting to see where there was way fewer of those spots I feel like it took this match took a lot of spots that could have been good near falls in a pin and turn them into just anticlimactic spots where you know he's not going to say I quit after he takes you know I don't know whatever this is a kendo stick shot to the head and but still if you like like big crazy spots I'm sure you've got some to mention like I know um I thought there was a really cool spot where Jimmy Jacobs takes the shell shock like into the guardrail the 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 barrier sign i thought that was cool you know like i mentioned all the weapon spots there, there are cool spots there's violence i thought jimmy jacobs worked really hard i just felt like again like the match was a little less than the than the effort that went into it yeah i mean i would definitely say i like the match a pretty decent amount more than you i thought it was a, i thought it was a great match you know four star range um i um you know and i thought particularly impressive what these guys are like what 20 21 at this point um you know, and so I don't. When you when you mention the I quit thing, when you think of the famous I quit matches in history, aren't they mostly like this? Like in terms of brawls, like it's not like Magnum TA and Tully Blanchard were like submission specialists, right? You know, the the Funk versus Flair match, they you know obviously Flair won with the figure four, but it was mostly a, a you know an all out brawl. Mick Foley and The Rock, you know. So I think this was in a tradition of I quit matches. Where it's like you're beating your opponent into submission rather than trying to work them into submission, if that makes sense. Um, but um, but you're but you're. I definitely agree with you about um, about Jacobs. Like his, he was really like, okay, this is a semi main event singles match with a storyline that I got an ROH. This is a guy who's never even gotten promo time. So that's a pretty big moment for Jimmy Jacobs. And I think he really makes the most of it. And you're right. They do have a lot of really cool spots. Like very early 
in the uh, in the match. Shelley is, I mean, uh, Shelley is on the receiving end, right? Of Jacobs, you know, get it, you know, um, she- Jacobs is throwing chairs into the ring. He's 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 throwing as Shelley all over into the guardrail, and then Shelley out of nowhere hits that shell shock onto Jacobs into the barricade, and that's when he takes over, and then. After he leg sweets Jimmy Jacobs into the barricade, he yells something first, and it sounded to me like he yelled "Frito Frito Lay," but I don't think that's what he yelled. Because as much <laughs> as I'm sure he loves those chips, I, I don't think he said that in the middle of his big match. Um, no, he, you know what he screamed? I think, I think he screamed TNA because I remember at this time a lot of fans were always getting on him with the baby bear chants and like go back to TNA chants. And he actually, I think, screams TNA. And just before you go back later on, did you notice there's a moment where um. This was such a snarky fan comment that made me cringe. But Shelly grabs a candlestick, and this is where he duct tapes Jacobs to the ring, um, the turnbuckle, so he can hit him with the candlestick. And you can hear a snarky fan. I don't know if you noticed this. You can hear a fan yell very clearly, now would TNA ever do something like this? Oh, yes. No. I, I wrote that down. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think he was just basically responding to fans really getting on him because he's in TNA. Well – I hope that one day ROH fans do a fuck Frito Lay chant. Um, <laughs> we like Uts or Why, I don't know, whatever their biggest competitor is. Wise, I don't know. Pringles. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> I just want a sound clip of just you enthusiastically blurting out Pringles that I could put on a soundboard. Well, if you that listen to an old Justin Shapiro show, I do have a song called All the Pringle Ladies. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, so. You do. You, this isn't even the first time you've mentioned Pringles. <laughs> nope. Um, pa, 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 pa. Okay, never mind. Um, well, I'm glad I got to sing that. Um, so, anyway, this match. Um, um, the one, one complaint I do have about the early parts of the match where they're on the floor, they stayed in, like, one corner of the ringside area, and I feel like it probably would have been nice for the rest of the crowd if they had moved around a little bit when they did all these spots. But it's a, I guess it's a small thing as someone watching on DVD who can see everything. Um, but, um, but yeah, there are definitely cool spots. Early on, um, Shelly does his like skull fuck move in driving, um, driving Jacobs' head repeatedly into a chair. And to me, that feels like it could be a finish where you repeatedly knock someone's head into a chair. That doesn't seem like a mid-match um, transition move to me. Um, even more so than Ode to the Bulldogs, right? Like, that just seems like the yeah. end of a match, like repeatedly hitting someone in the head with a chair, but whatever. Um, Jacobs pulls out the spike, which had become, would become one of his signatures in brawls. And I really like that because it was, like, surprising. And, you know, and they do some good spots where Shelley is avoiding getting hit by the spike. And then he just gets to hit Jacobs himself. And, like, you talked about the difference between intensity of these two guys. And, I, you know, maybe it was intentional, maybe it wasn't, but I thought it worked because you're right. Shelley has, is dominant on, over Jacobs. Like, he beats him all the time. He's a much higher position on the card. He just finds Jacobs to be a pest. And Jacobs is, like, pulled, doing everything he can to, like, to destroy Shelley. And Shelley is just like, nope, and I'm destroying you. And so at one point he has like the kendo stick and the um and the spike and he like he spikes him with one hand kendo sticks him with the other hand spikes him with one hand kendo sticks him with the other hand and of course we get a ring of hardcore reference from all this um yeah. which you know I mean I guess this is more what Foley would be talking about than a random what Moth and Whitmer hit somebody in the 
you know, uh, with a chair a hundred times match, right? Uh, at least yeah. this has a story. One of my, I think my favorite spot of the match was actually when Jacobs goes for the Contra Code onto a chair, but Shelly, like, grabs him and reverses it into a tombstone through this chair that's already, like, set up. I think that's a really cool spot. Uh, you, know, you don't really see that too often, and it was really well executed. Um, so I definitely enjoyed that. Um, and Shelly just, like, wore out Jimmy's back with the kendo stick, while he's taped up, like you know, you mentioned he tapes him up in the uh, in the turnbuckle. He really brutally wears him out. And at this point, you you mentioned that um, you know somebody yelled, "I wonder if TNA will let you do that." But at this point, um, Jimmy Jacobs is just getting the tar beat out of him with a kendo stick, and a fan just goes, "Where are your purple boots?" And, <laughs> and I'm just like, I wonder if someone yelled that at Magnum TA while he was sticking a spike in Tully Blanchard's eyes. Like it just, it's just so, like it was just such random timing. Like so, I guess you could argue that if that fan is so unengaged in the storyline, then maybe they weren't succeeding as much as I thought they were. But it felt like they were mostly. Um, um, like, but eventually, you know, Jimmy does fight out of the Border City stretch the first time. Um, you know, he, he keeps his hand up. He hits at one point does a camel clutch with the assistance of the kendo stick, but Shelly won't give up. So they do do a few submission spots. Um, Jacobs hits like an unprettier. Then he goes to the senton off the top. Then cracks Shelly over the head with the stick and puts the Border City stretch on Shelly. And I thought that was really cool. Then he set up two chairs. He laid a third one over them and he went for the Contra code, but Shelly blocked it. Kane Jimmy Jacobs, then he hit that cross-legged brain buster that you mentioned. I think he calls it, it came from Japan too, uh, on the mm. chairs. Then he did the Border City stretch, and Shelly's screaming that Jimmy quits. Jimmy finally does. Jimmy's emotion during all this was just fantastic. And like you said, Shelly is just much more like frustrated and arrogant during the whole time. But Shelly pulls it out. I thought it was just an extremely well-laid-out match, especially when you're talking about two very young guys. Um, yeah, I just thought they did a really great job putting that match together, and I thought the execution was good. I can't think of any like botches or anything, and I didn't find I found that the difference in their intensity was more of a feature to the storyline than it was a bug, at least for me. Mm. Something you mentioned too that I, I was thinking about was you mentioned that pur- that purple boots comment. This was a really interesting point in Jimmy Jacobs' Ring of Honor career. Because it's like a transition point because you can hear on a commentary, Gabe for the last couple shows keeps going, you know, Jacobs is moving away from the Huss stuff. But it's funny because if you w- watch this match, like the crowd is still hussing a lot. He's never, and, he's never done a promo or presented himself as a different character. Yeah, and it's never been an official thing. It just starts happening, and you know, Gabe also tries to sell that, you know, Ricky Steamboat's taking him under his wing, which is, again, something that's not really shown – like in storyline, like in a promo, it's just we're told by Gabe this is what's happening. But it feels weird because – and we've talked about this before. Like when you see guys like Orange Cassidy or all sorts of wrestlers nowadays or Joey Ryan who – it's weird to bring him up because he's a horrible person. But like you know, it feels like nowadays in the modern era, a wrestler could do like what would be considered a fringe or a comedy character and really go far in wrestling. Where back in Jimmy Jacobs, the Hust days, that gimmick was always more over than it was positioned as. And yet it was always Gabe on commentary saying like, if he, he's going to have to get serious, you you know, and I feel like you, this is a transition point where he's being serious, more serious, but the crowd crowd still wants to see Huss. And as I think we'll see as the months keep on going, 
losing the Husky gimmick without really replacing it with much actually hurts him to the point where he's almost out of the company until he comes up with uh, the Jimmy Loves Lacey storyline. Like it, it was, it was kind of like they took something away with him without giving him something back. This was probably Jimmy Jacobs' biggest singles match in ROH, probably until the BJ Whitmer feud in like 2007. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like just yeah. And but but I think you know even if we both we both liked the Metro obviously you liked it more than me but I think we can both agree this is probably one probably I mean not probably I think this is the best Jimmy Jacobs performance in Ring of Honor up to this point like by far yeah well like you said it's the, it's his first opportunity of having a real major singles match also and he yeah. he, he delivers in that position. And so that brings us finally to the main event. And boy, is it a main event with lots to talk about. The Ring of Honor world title match, Samoa Joe and CM Punk went to a time limit draw. Yes, not a repeat, a second time, 60-minute time limit draw. Uh, Matt? I should, uh, I should before, mention before we get too into this, um, the end of that last thing with the Foley uh, thing with the, where the Carnage crew oh, come I, out. I, I forgot to mention that, Matt. Thank you so much. I can go through that. I I completely missed that. God, that thank God for you, Matt. Um, well, again, again, the, the only the only time anyone's ever said that. <laughs> After the match, uh, Shelly grabs Al. Shelly grabs the mic. Shelly says, for a year and a half, Jacobs has just been kept coming back and coming back, and he's sick of Jacobs' shit. Shelly says he's going to make Jimmy wish that he died in his sleep last night, which is pretty harsh. Uh, Shelly grabs the candlestick, and he tells Jimmy to say his fucking prayers. Uh, Roderick Strong joins in on the beatdown until Ricky Steamboat chases them away. The Carnage crew then run in, and they beat up Steamboat as the crowd chants for Foley. The beatdown continues until Moff, Whitmer, and Foley all run in. Uh, Foley dishes out the mandible claw, double arm DDT, and a chair shot to save Steamboat. Uh, Mick gets on the mic, and he tells Steamboat that hardcore wrestling just saved his ass. And Matt, what is the score that Mick Foley quotes to him? Pure wrestling one, hardcore wrestling one. All tied up. Which doesn't make any sense, because... um, this wasn't a match. Hardcore Wrestling didn't win. But hey, whatever. We keep, we're making our own rules. It's fine. No, yeah, that's go- no, no goose eggs involved. <laughs> so that brings us to the world title match. Matt, I thought this match is one of the most – we'll talk about why – one of the most important matches in Ring of Honor history up to this point and probably one of the most important of just the entire Sapolsky era that goes up to late 2008. The only so the I- only ROH matchups at this point that was even close and important would be the main event of the very first ROH show. It's Other than that, like this blows everything else away in terms of importance. So I thought we kind of do this into three parts, which is first, I can get – a little background on the match, then we can talk about the match, and then we can kind of do what it's almost a separate story, which is the reaction this match got and what it meant to the company. And uh, I have more material on this one match than I think we've had for any match in a long time, maybe ever. Like, it's not quite Feinstein show material level, thank God, but there was a lot written about this match. And also from my notes, I should bring up just like the match, the first one hour draw that we covered in Dayton at the world title classic. Um, I, I trans, I didn't transcribe word for word, but I recapped my notes with their segment talking about this match in the CM Punk Samoa Joe straight shooting, um, shoot interview, which continues to be, I think I plugged on the last time. It's one of the best shoot interviews. If you're a fan of this era, I don't think two wrestlers have ever done quite as good a job of going into detail on specific matches. Talking about it to you privately, you brought up the good point of 
I don't know how many times guys have had a shoot interview where they talked about a match like this. It wasn't very long after these three matches where they actually did the shoot interview, so it was fresh in their minds. But I, I, I would normally feel bad about using like such detailed descriptions of what they said in a shoot interview in the notes for like, cause I recap a lot of it, but I would say in this point, in this case, I don't feel bad because this is a DVD. Like most of ring of honor stuff of this era, it's out of print. So you can't legally buy this anywhere. You have to go on eBay or yeah. find a torrent. This is, this is a guilt free situation, Trevor. Yeah. Do, do not feel this, bad. <laughs> Yeah, the gray, this is a situation where the gray market is the only market for this. So yeah. if you want to buy this legally, you, li- you literally can't right now. So anyway, I thought I'd go into the history. So um, this match, Matt, one of the amazing things about this match is it was never supposed to happen. This match, Well, in a way it was, but in a way it wasn't. Because as we talked about on the last show, this weekend, it, the, it was, the big selling point of this weekend, the double shot of ROH Gold and Joe versus Punk 2, before it was called that, was supposed to be, it was Steve Carino's return to in-ring Ring of Honor wrestling in matches for the first time in like a year. He was going to be in the six-man main event on the last night. Jimmy Jacobs replaced him, and he was supposed to be Samoa Joe in the main event of this match. And as we talked about in the last episode, episode 50 of through the years Carino because zero one his home promotion had so many injuries they said Steve you know we have to pull you off these shows you can't book yourself out we need you back in Japan for zero one he wrote a big public apology so this match wasn't supposed to happen and I did some research and through the shoot interview I don't think they never explicitly say this but this was never supposed to be a trilogy of matches I think. This was during the the Punk Joe shoot interview where they talk about this stuff. The shoot interviewer who isn't gay but someone else, he actually tells them like the rematch to your match in Dayton was supposed to happen at tw- on December 4th, which is when their third match happens, which is All-Star Extravaganza 2. And during the shoot interview, when Punk and Joe hear this, they're both surprised. They did not know that that was the plan. They didn't know until the shoot interviewer tells them, but what they describe in the shoot interview is they say after the Joe punk match at world title classic, they sat down with Gabe Sapolsky and they decide where are we going to go with this, with this feud. And they say the three of them agreed that they were going to hold off on doing a rematch as long as possible. That their goal was to tease this out until they said like the fans were just begging to see the rematch. And so they, Joe and Punk both say on this shoot interview, they were pissed when Carino canceled on short notice because then Gabe at that point calls them up. I think they said something like five days or something before the show, something like that, and says to them, like, I want to do Punk Joe too because I guess Gabe, they don't say this in the shoot, but I think it stands to reason that Gabe's doing the old Booker thing, which is if you have to remove a major match from a show, you give the fans something even better because you don't want fans to start feeling like that they're not going to get what they promised. So you want to you want condition them into expecting that if a major match gets canceled, we're actually going to give you better than what you were promised. And Joe and Punk in the shoot say they were both were mad. Like they said, they wrote angry emails to their friend Carino about having to cancel. They fought against Gabe doing this match. They felt like, no, we wanted to hold this off way longer and you won't uh, like, and you know, Joe in the shoot says, I understand Gabe's point about not wanting this new big market Chicago to take a hit. But he was like, I thought, Gabe, can't we let them take the hit just this one time and we'll make it up to them. Yeah. Joe, definitely not the promoter right there. (laughs) 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, but to their to their credit, Joe says we eventually realized, look, we're wrestlers. We're paid to do at the end of the day what the booker tells us to do. And they said so over those five days, we got ourselves in the mindset to try and match what we did on the last show. So, Matt, before we get into did they match or top what they did on on the show before, um, the one other note that's really interesting and actually pertains to the last show, but I saved it for this show, which is they talk about in the shoot interview um, how bad Joe and Punk were both hurt going to this match. The words they used to describe this match was they said everything that was could go against this match was going against it because first you have the booking being screwed up. This isn't even the time they wanted this match. They had no build, no plan to get in, even get into the cardio. And then the shoot, Punk and Joe, they talk about um, Joe says he hurt his leg a couple weeks earlier in New York, and he says his leg was shot on this weekend. Uh, Punk says Joe stayed with him, and it was so swollen it was like a pumpkin. Joe says after the Rocky Romero match the night before in Dayton, his leg was so swollen it took him an hour to get his kick pad off backstage. He says CM Punk and Homicide both had to help him take it off. He says he nearly cried during it. It hurt so much. And Joe also points out that Homicide was laughing the whole time, which sounds like a Homicide thing. Joe says that they then drove all night to Chicago to stay at Ace Steele's house. And he says when they went to sleep, by the time he woke up, his leg had blown back up again. Meanwhile, Punk notes that he had worked two matches the night before at Ring of Honor Gold. He says neither match was easy to work. And then he says um, they were both so hurt that they planned this match with Punk laying on his stomach with ice on his back and Joe laying on his back their heads like just mere inches or feet away from each other. And then Gabe, they said was coming in every five minutes asking them how it was going in classic panicked Gabe style. Joe says Mick Foley came in at one point and he saw Joe's leg and he said, quote, good God, you're going to wrestle tonight. And Joe just was like, yep, I don't want to, but I'm going to wrestle tonight. And punk says his injuries, if you watch the match and I did notice this, he has like a, um, weird big bandage on his back that he pulls off very early and i punk says that was like a bengay medicated patch on his back and he i think he says something like i don't know why i thought that would stay on my back but and then finally matt the last little note before the match um punk says gabe was super nervous about the second match punk says when his music started before the match he looked at joe backstage with gabe watching and said my mind's gone blank we should just listen to the crowd and wing it and gabe says it had a look of horror on his face joe then says gabe looked at him and trying to figure out if punk was t- joking or not joe just looked at gabe too and said i'm kind of in the same boat i don't know what we're gonna do and then they just went out and wrestled the match i don't know if that's all, i don't know if that's all true but if it's not that's some damn good folklore the, the, way, the way they talk, you can't quite tell if they're fucking with Gabe or if that was really their mindset. Either way, I, I can believe the part about Gabe being panicked, but like the, I, I kept trying to interpret their tone, but I can't, I can't tell if, if it, I believe that they said that stuff. I don't believe if they really meant it or they just, cause you can tell listening to the shoot interview, they clearly through multiple points in the show, like re, in the shoot relish, like ribbing Gabe whenever they can. So I have no idea, like, are they screwing with Gabe or did they really like run out of ideas? Although I will say punk and Joe both say 80% of this match was improvised on the fly. It was 20% ideas thought of before the match started. And then 80% spur of the moment things. Well, it 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 seems like it would be really difficult to memorize an hour's worth of stuff, but who knows? Uh, Matt, finally, after all that preamble, let you take first shot. This, Big match. What'd you think about this match? 
All right. So I don't know. Do you think I should go into play by play, or do you think I should give my the the big the big picture first? Um, I uh, whatever you. I um I would say it's it starts as not quite a money in the bank atmosphere for Punk at the beginning, but it's a pretty damn good atmosphere. He gets way more streamers than Joe, although Jeff Joe definitely has his fans in the crowd, including one very vocal one that you could hear late in the show. But um but Punk is definitely the babyface. Um, but the atmosphere is great, like just a great atmosphere the entire time from minute one to minute sixty, phenomenal. Um, I thought this was Mark Nolte's probably his best performance, wouldn't you say? Yes, I, I think especially even I would go far as to say the Gabe Nolte team. This is the best we've ever heard. Like I thought they worked good as it was definitely Nolte's best performance. But I thought Gabe and Nolte actually worked good as a team on this match. Yeah, Nolte helped me understand certain like plot points, so to speak, you know, storylines that I um, that I wouldn't have maybe thought of. Um, but what one thing I really liked is like how they. You know, like as you would expect, they really did a good job playing off the first match. Because if you remember the first match, the storyline early was that Punk was going to rope a dope Joe. Like he was going to get Joe to punch himself out. And and I remember in our original review, you had mentioned that this match, that that match, you remembered there being a lot of headlocks. And they did a lot of headlocks, but there wasn't as many as you thought. Yeah. You were thinking of this match. <laughs> yeah, like this match, they doubled down on the headlocks. They they kind of abandoned the rope-a-dope. They even yeah, mentioned that on commentary. They did, yes. But then it's like punk strategy this time. It's like, all right, rope-a-dope didn't work so much. Headlocks did. Double down on the headlocks. Right, so he does a lot of headlocks early. And like the storyline in the first part of the match is more like punk is frustrating Joe. Because like he, Joe just can't get anything going on him. Like punk will just go back to that side headlock. You know, really take him out with the side headlock. Um, this is just one side thing I noticed. You know how, like, when Gabe does the um, does the um, pr- plugging of the website and stuff and the DVDs, he goes, Artie's in my earpiece? Yeah. So whenever he says that, I always can't help but just picture Arnie Pie, from, even though he says Artie, Arnie Pie from The Simpsons. You know, Arnie in the sky. That, that's so because he's you know he's on a headset also. So I just I just imagine Arnie Pie telling Gabe, "You gotta plug the you gotta you gotta plug the DVDs." I don't know. Um, I know that's a weird timing for that comment, but okay. Um, so Joe is you know obviously very, um, very frustrated by all of the headlocks, and he shows it. And I like you know he's, he's kicking the guardrail, uh, you know stuff like that. Um, um, so, he, you know, Punk continues to have Joe's number, and they're really working the side headlock for a long time, and the point where the crowd is popping for each headlock takeover, so you know you have a crowd going when the crowd pops for your headlock takeovers, because, you know, that's such a common and not major move. Um, like, um, so early on, they're doing a lot of backing into the corner with clean breaks, but now as Joe gets frustrated... Uh, he backs Punk into the corner and he just chops the crap out of him. But then Punk gets another headlock, so even the Joe's strikes aren't really holding down Punk. So Joe does a back suplex on Punk while in the headlock, but Punk holds on to the headlock. Uh, you know, all these headlock s- spots are great. And he, at this point, that's when Nolte notes, like, Punk, he's not doing the rope-a-dope. He's, instead of allowing himself to get beaten up by Joe, he's just going to keep Joe grounded. And it's, you know, it seems to be working pretty well. They do a spot where Joe challenges Punk to hit the ropes and knock him down. And, you know, Punk does it and Joe, you know, stays put. He shoves him. Punk does it again. And the third time, Punk teases it. But instead, he just goes to hit Joe and Joe avoids it and hits Punk. And they do this, like, cool series of reversals ending with a roll-up. 
And and to the point where Joe actually goes out to the floor for a breather, which you never see Samoa Joe do. So yeah. like a lot of like frustration from Samoa Joe, and it's just really really credible. Um, and it really you know it works. Um, they even do a few tests of strength, and Joe's headbutting him while in the knuckle lock, and then he follows. They follow up with like a slap fest, but Joe, but Punk actually gets like gets the better of the slap fest for a little while. But then Joe ends that with just like a big kick to the head, and he knocks Punk to the floor, and that's kind of like the first time that Punk has a clear disadvantage. And we're talking like twenty minutes into the match at this point. So one thing I'm noticing about the early part of the match is, even though they're you know starting slow, starting basic, they're not messing around. You know, it's 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 very to the point. It's all in service of winning the match. Um, there's no fooling around with the um, with the fans, which if you remember that happened in the first 20 minutes of the uh, of the first match. It's all business, um, but the crowd is just as with it, if not more so. Um, so. Um, um, so Punk is um, I mean Joe's working over Punk's shoulder. Excuse me. Um, Punk is working over Joe's shoulder with boots, and he slams Joe's arm into the mat, and he actually knocks Joe down with a chop. Which I don't know. You wouldn't expect CM Punk to knock down Samoa Joe with a chop, but I guess it just goes to show how much Punk has worn Joe down. And Punk actually does the rope walk spot where he does the Undertaker style rope walk, but then he comes down with like a leg drop on Joe's shoulder. And Gabe notes that Punk hadn't done that since the Cabana matches in 2002. Um, mm-hmm. But it actually makes a lot of sense here because, like, Joe's been working, and Punk's been working on Joe's, you know, he's doing the chin lock, so he has, like, he's working on the, the neck and the, and the shoulder. So it makes a lot of sense. And he keeps arm dragging Joe, and Nolte notes that Steamboat must have worked with him on the arm drag. I would have loved some skits like that with Steamboat teaching Punk how to do an arm drag. <laughs> um, but I don't think that Punk was thinking that when he did this. I think it was just like that's sort of like a retroactive um, continuity thing. Um, so, um, so Punk doesn't allow Joe to get much momentum. He keeps taking Joe down. We're we're getting close to like half hour point, and we're still doing the side headlock thing. Um, Joe takes Punk to the floor while he's in the headlock, and Punk holds on even to the floor. So Joe back suplexes him on the floor. And, like, that's a clever spot, I thought, because finally you're starting to see the momentum turn around a little bit, like, close to halfway through the match. And um, then back in the ring, there's a cool spot, because earlier in the match, Joe went for his, like, you know how Joe does the snap mare into a kick into the knee? So the first time Joe did it, Punk blocked it. But now, after taking that suplex on the floor, Punk doesn't block it. And um, Joe, he tries, but Joe won't let him, and he gets him down. And then he... but But... Punk is not out yet because Joe is coming on with his face wash, but Punk moves out of the way from the running boot, and then Punk does his own. So Punk still is back in control. Um, Punk gets like a cover on Joe, and Joe gets his foot on the ropes, and Nolte says, I don't know if that would have helped, that would have kept Joe down anyway, which is really my only complaint about Mark Nolte during this <laughs> entire match. Just another one of those, yeah, this wrestler isn't doing a good enough job. Like another one of those kind of like <laughs> unnecessary comments. Um, yeah. But very minor complaint. Um, so Joe gets the STF on Punk, and Gabe notes that Romero lost to that last night. But and, and and I know that Joe actually mentioned this in the shoot interview. Um, Joe like turns it into this like weird stretch move. So basically, Joe has the STF on Punk, but then he like pulls Punk up while he's while Joe is still on his knees. And Joe basically like bends Punk back in the other direction while his 
while his legs are still locked, like almost putting Punk into like a bridging position. Um, Joe can't hold it for long, but it gets a really big pop, and it's a really cool spot that you've never seen before. And it makes sense that you've never seen it before, because Joe literally says he just made that move up, like right yeah. on the spot. Which you can sort of tell, like it's not a real move, but it, it was really it worked pretty well, especially now that you know the backstory that CM Punk had a bad back, and um, you know all that stuff. Um, Nolte says, of all the matches CM Punk has had, this could be his best. And Gabe says... The same could be said for Samoa Joe. The same could be said for ROH history. Now, it's funny here because like, I actually thought Nolte's comment was good because the story of the match is how well Punk is doing at this point. But I thought Gabe jumped the gun on saying this is the best in ROH history. It was like it, To me, it was too early in the match for a statement like that. Like It hadn't reached that level yet. Like It was a really good match, but you still have a half hour to go. And I yeah. don't know. I just, that's like almost one of those like Gabe, where he knows that someone is injured. You know, it's like he knew the match would be epic before it was. Uh, you know, I mean, small but noticeable. Psychic Gabe back again. He just knows what's going to happen. It's almost as if this show was already uh, already happened, and he he's commenting over a tape. Exactly. Um, Joe does his spot, which I love, where Punk goes for a crossbody, and Joe just kind of like casually walks away and stares at the crowd. You know, he doesn't, like, move out of the way, like, in a dramatic way. He just sort of, like, like kind of, like, just saunters out of the way. Um, and Joe gets actually a really big chant for that one. Probably one of his biggest chants of the match, honestly. Um, Joe does a really long, delayed vertical suplex. So, like, you could see these guys, like, doing these moves that they don't normally do. I don't remember seeing Joe hit, uh, like, a, a delayed vertical before. Do you? No, not really. In fact, if anything, Punk is the guy that would occasionally do that. Yeah, I don't think he was doing that one on Joe, though. Yeah, um, no, no, no. Um, so Punk, so now Joe is really has the momentum. Like, Punk is coming back with chops, a drop kick, and Joe just hits a leg sweep to cut him off. He does a Boston Crab, and Punk goes for the roast, but Joe sits back. But, you know, Punk makes it. Um, Joe actually does these corner buckle whips, like almost like he's whipping Bret Hart into the, into the turnbuckle face first. But what Joe does, like, to really make it like an oomph on it he drops down every time he whips him like he drops down like face first onto the mat which i thought was a really good touch like he's just like that that power that he does i really enjoy that um so um so at this point joe is so dominant that nolte wonders if the ref might start the match and i thought it was it was cool like how like punk had been in control for so long and joe just his his dominance like was only a few minutes at this point but it was so dominant that nolte's like i think we got to stop this match and it actually made sense um so joe now he hits his face wash face wash and running boot combo without punk escaping so you could really see that punk is um you know punk is kind of losing here punk tries to fight back but there's nothing behind the strikes but he does come out of nowhere with like a head scissors off the middle rope and a tope to the floor. And he actually goes for the ole ole kick and hits it. Um, and then he goes for another kick and he hits it right in front of Dr. Keith. And <laughs> and Joe's eyes are just like rolling into the back of his head, which shades of the end of Reborn Stage 2 where they're in the bathroom. If you remember that spot at all, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh yeah, when when oh god, that was such. It worked this time. It was the corniest thing ever in that backstage segment. No, it definitely worked here, and so this is one of the big spots of the match now. Um, so if you remember in the first match, Punk went for a Rana off the apron. So now Joe catches him, swings him into the guardrail, and he is pissed off, and he hits the Ole Ole kick. But Punk actually cuts him off. He, they have like a strike battle on the floor, again, in front of Dr. Keith. Um, 
and Punk is fired up because Dr. Keith is giving him all of his energy. Um, but Joe gets the better of it, and then he hits the ole ole kick really hard. And that was a great sequence. Like, And Joe is just so intense here. Even though it's an hour-long match, even though they have 20 more minutes to, to drag this out, Joe doesn't even go for a second ole ole kick. Like, that's how into what they're doing. Like, they, they're not even like, okay, let's do it again. Give it a couple extra minutes. He's like, no, I'm pissed. I'm furious. We're going to get back into the ring. And um, Punk actually head uh, head scissors Joe into the buckle and corn- and charges at him. But Joe hits that, you know, that ST Joe move for two. And the crowd actually at the 40-minute mark actually buys that as a near fall. I don't think Joe's ever won with that move. But the crowd actually popped. Um, then Joe hits the elbow suicida, and this is when Gabe goes, Mark, I can't take it anymore. The atmosphere is incredible. Let's go into the crowd. you got to be a fan for something like this. And Nolte's like, you're right. This match speaks for itself. So nice to be able to just like quit your job before the end to be a fan. <laughs> but um, there is no commentary for the rest of the match, so that is one less thing for me to comment on. Yeah. The final 18 minutes, and I, I said to you in the notes, I mean, we were talking, ironically, I would say, like, the best performance these two have had together is the one that they say eighteen with 18 minutes left, yeah, let's not do this anymore. It's just, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it was fine. Like, I'm not saying I necessarily missed the commentary so much, but they probably could have added something if they had been as good as they were for the first 42 minutes. So that's a compliment, Gabe. I'm saying you did a good job. Um, yeah. But – um so now all of this is done with no commentary. So Joe goes to suplex Punk on the apron, but Punk fights him off, so Joe just DDTs him on the apron. Then Punk goes for a shining wizard back in the ring, but Joe cuts him off with a spear. And according to the um, according to the shoot interview, right, Punk actually just like called for that spear right before, and Joe's thinking, like, I've never hit a spear in my life. But he hits <laughs> it, and it was a good spear. Yeah, it, it is shockingly good. For a guy that's that that not just has never done one before, but did not they all know they were doing one probably till like five seconds before they did. <laughs> yeah, like I mean, I guess it's not that complicated a move, but still, it's I've seen bad ones, that's for sure. Um, yeah. So Punk moves out of the way of a Joe top rope splash, and both guys are down. Then they get to their knees and they're trading strikes, and Joe is up to his feet first and goes for a pile driver, but Punk escapes, hits a mule kick, and it ends a Gary because you just can't keep CM Punk down in Chicago. He hits six thigh-slapping mule kicks and runs at Joe, but Joe hits that snap power bomb for two and turns it into the cross arm breaker. But Punk makes the ropes. And at this point, for the rest of the match, pretty much pretty much everyone in the crowd is on their feet. Um, they are so into all this. Punk puts Joe on the top rope and hits a neck breaker on him for a two count. Joe escapes a swinging DDT, but Punk tries again and hits, for, and hits it for a two count. Punk gets on what I think was the Anaconda device, wasn't it? I think the first time he did that in ROH and Joe got to the ropes. I think so. Yeah, so debut of the Anaconda device. That's a little-known fact about this match. Um, Punk yells, Brain Busta, and goes for one. Uh, but Joe blocks it and knees him, and then Joe powers Punk over. But Punk escapes. But then Joe hits a big lariat for two. And this is when you could start hearing the Joe superfan. It's a guy in the crowd who just keeps yelling to Joe, specifically saying Joe's name a lot. Watch it, Joe! He's, he says, um, at one point he's like, um, Joe, get the belly to belly! Like, it's just like, I believe I believe in the shoot interview, the Joe and Punk called him Smokes his granddaddy. Um, that's their words, <laughs> not mine. Um, they do say that, though. Um, and he's very entertaining. I, I wonder if that guy knows how much, how audible he is on this in this famous match. Um, 
But uh, so Joe hits a fireman's carry into a stomach breaker, then a brain buster. So at this point, they're just hitting big moves, like with desperation. Um, and Joe goes for another lariat, but Punk avoids it. Hits like an arm trap DDT for two, and gets an ROH chant <laughs> for some reason. I think the crowd's just like just so enthralled. Punk goes for the Pepsi twist, but Joe avoids it. Hits a power bomb into another STF. He turns that into the cross face, but Punk gets his foot on the ropes. The crowd bought that as a possible finish, also. Joe goes for the dragon suplex, but Punk fights out, kicks Joe in the knee. He hits a sunset flip um, and gets two, but and then he immediately hits the shining wizard for two, which I thought was a really good sequence. He does a Pepsi twist, then a moonsault for two. All of the two counts are, by the way, getting like enormous pops here. Um, Joe comes with like with a Joe comes two, hits a series of slaps and this like hard to explain suplex where he. Grabs Punk's and he and then he grabs Punk's arm, goes for another lariat, but Punk like jumps on his back and locks in a sleeper hold, and the crowd's chanting tap tap tap. But Joe hits a Saito suplex style move and gets out of it. But Punk does like a fighting spirit stand up power up move, and they both clothesline each other, and they're both down. And I gotta take a breath. Um, <laughs> so the crowd counts along, and Punk gets up around eight. Punk goes up to the top for the Pepsi plunge, and this is probably the best part of the whole match. There's just this epic struggle at the top where Punk is going for the Pepsi plunge. Joe fights off. Punk gets it again. Joe fights it off. Punk gets it again. But Joe fights it off, and eventually Joe hits a superplex. Like, it's basically a whole match at the top of the a top rope right there. They must have been up there for, like, what, two minutes? Maybe? Maybe less it than felt that. Like it, felt, a, I, it felt like a war up there. Like, yeah. back and forth, back and forth. It reminded me of... Paul London against da- uh, Brian Danielson from Night of the Butcher. If you ever want to go, ba- anyone wants to go back and listen to that review, they have a, they have a war at the top rope. Um, but um, so there's um, Joe goes for the for the muscle buster, but Punk aggressively fights him off with strikes to the back. But Joe gets back up as the guy yells, that guy yells, belly to belly, come on, Joe! And the ref counts the, down the final seconds as Joe hits the muscle buster or something that was an approximation of a muscle buster. <laughs> And the time runs out. Um, so what I love about that last 20 minutes is that they are hitting all these big moves, but not really, if you think about it. There's no muscle buster for the last second. There is no Pepsi plunge. There is no choke. There is no island driver. There is no dragon suplex. Um, they saved a lot. Even in two hours, they saved a lot. They, like, they talked in the, at, in the shoot interview after their first match about how they didn't do too much in that first match. They didn't do too much in the second match, and they did everything in the second match. So they still had stuff to save. Um, as far as the match itself, I think it was pretty close to flawless. Like the, uh, the, the two guys said in their shoot interview that they were upset that the announcer wasn't counting down the time cues. And I could see that. Like, I, I think it probably would have been better if they were like, five minutes left, one minute left, and there was that sense of urgency. But the crowd had that sense of urgency anyway. And, like, they just... I What I just loved about this match was, like, it didn't seem like it was trying too hard. Like, it was just great because it was great. It wasn't great because they went out there to be like, let's have an epic. Like, you know, like, the big... Like the big knock on a lot of these modern matches, WWE, even New Japan, indies, is like the idea of the self-conscious epic. 
yeah. where these guys do everything in the kitchen sink and they have all this drama, but it's clearly like they knew they were going to have all this drama and they wanted to, everyone to say this was the best match they've ever seen. These two guys wanted to have a really great match, but they didn't go out there like, let's just like paint this Picasso masterpiece. They were just like, let's just do our, let's just do our thing and tell a good story and have a good match. And the match ended up being that much better for it. Like you don't see too many matches like this where they're not going for this like over the top drama. They just have natural drama because it's CM Punk's hometown. They both have great chemistry. Their moves look good. Their pacing was great. Um, there, the story just worked because Punk had Joe's number, but he just couldn't overcome Joe's dominance in the end. But Joe couldn't put Punk away either, and they didn't. There was no fat in this match. There was no silliness in this match. Um, there was no dead bomb moments in this match. This is another one of those matches where I'm like, oh, it's an hour. I'm just gonna watch. Um, a half hour of it, and then watch the second half hour tomorrow. But by the, before I knew it, the match was over because it went by so fast. Um, there's just nothing negative I can say about it. I think, I think this match holds up. Sixteen years later, I think it is probably the best match up to this point that we've reviewed. The only match that I could think of that I liked nearly as much was that Brian Danielson versus Low Key match. But this match just had more context. It had more like it had just more of a storyline throughout i think you know the characters were more beloved at this point the stakes felt higher um you know one of the things that really put this match over for a lot of people was how prestigious it made the roh belt seem and it really really did like it really did make this belt seem extremely prestigious this this really does feel like the most important belt in the world during the time that this match is taking place and you know, if you're watching this match, it's hard pressed to feel like this isn't the most important belt in the world, and that this isn't the most important match going on in the world at that you know in that week. Um, so I think they did everything that they wanted to do, and like probably a lot, lot more. I don't think they had any clue that they were going to be doing something like this. But yeah, I think five stars. So. First off, Matt, let me just say that's some of your best work ever on this podcast. I, I I can't believe you did such a great job recapping that match, and like I think I would have lost my voice at that point. You did such a great job. You never like that's you, this match has brought out the best in us. Even well, you we'll <laughs> see if what it does in me. Thank you. But um, I think this match was uh, it was pretty overrated. It's not that good. Anyway, moving on <laughs> to the next. No, um, so it's interesting. Some people do think this match is overrated. And uh, one thing I will say right off the bat about this match that I said about the first hour-long match these two had is I think these are both matches where I think they're great with no context, but I do think they're extra great if you ha- uh, have the context. Like, for example, the stuff you were talking about in that first half an hour where Samoa Joe, the first half an hour of this match is all about Samoa Joe being frustrated. Like, you you point out all the things where, you know, he goes out of the ring for to catch his breath, which he never does. He kicks the guardrail in frustration when a fan's, like, yelling at him, which he never does. He, he does these things, that, and if you come into this match with no context, they'll be like, okay, He's getting a little bit out wrestled and he's frustrated. I've seen that in a million matches. But if you're a Ring of Honor fan from this period and you've watched a lot of the shows or every show like us, you know that's never happened. You know, it, it's way it's a way bigger deal to someone like us because you it, it because of the storytelling. Because it's storytelling that's not 
a story being told in one match. It's a story being told in the booking and in 20 matches. It, it's the idea of Joe is kind of giving Punk something which he's built up for years, which is – or at least a year, which is Joe is the guy who – Yes, he, he's he's gotten pinned in matches, and yes, guys have hurt him, but Joe in most of his matches, especially during this title run, he's never on defense for very long. Joe has never in Ring of Honor been on a match like this, where for the first half an hour, he gets a little bit of offense, but really, Punk just dominates him and doesn't let Joe be Joe. You know, to put it simply. And, and yeah, yeah, you compare it to the match the night before, and it's like a world, a world of difference in what Joe gets to do. Yeah, and, and you know, again, that, that's like I think you can enjoy that story if you've never watched any Ring of Honor. But where it becomes just another level is knowing everything it's playing off of and knowing how special this is, because for the character, it's such a different moment for him. It's he's pushed into a place he's never been before, and so all that. So first off, I want to say that to people that think it's a bit overrated. I think that's why some people not to not to say that people's opinions aren't valid, but I just do think that's one of the reasons why some people think it's overraised, maybe because they don't have the context like that, which is, you know, it's not their fault. You don't always have to have the context, but I think it's great no matter how much context you have. And the other thing I want to start off this quickly by saying is, well, not quickly, but, um, um, the first match, it's funny, like, my memories of these matches, like, you, you you know my memory of the first match where I said, boy, I remember this having more headlocks, and you were, like, you were thinking of this match, and you're right. I also remember, like, this match between the shoot interview comments, which we'll get to, and, and stuff, which is, oh, this match was all about playing off the first match. That's what these guys said it was about and stuff, and they do play off spots in the first, but what I was struck by rewatching this is that more than it playing off the first match, although it does, it feels way more... Like they took the first match and just said, let's do it better. It's like every, it, cause it really is the same basic story apart from the rope dope part. It's punk is trying to beat Joe by grounding him with headlocks, making him go deep into a match, which he's never done before. Or in this case is only done once before. And Joe didn't win that match. And then after about the half an hour in both matches, punk kind of drops the headlocks because Joe's worn down and it becomes more of a, a regular match, but now Joe's in the deep waters and it's just this match. It's like, it's a version of that match, except like you said, it's way more focused. Like it feels like from the start, it's a 60 minute match where it feels like they're not fucking around. Like everything has purpose. Everything's about telling a story. It's a very confident match in that way. It feels like these guys know exactly what they want to do. And, but also all the weaknesses that we had in the first match are gone. Like you mentioned, there's that part that, we didn't like, but I think some people that reading the reviews at the time hated even more that part you mentioned in the first match where Joe and Punk like yell at the heckler in the crowd and kill a few minutes with that, which they admitted in the shoot interview. Joe says, you know, in that first match, I thank God for that fan because I was dying out there and I was out, of, I was out of ideas. There's nothing like this in this match. The, the closest that comes to it is there's a heckler in the crowd early on and Punk has Joe in a headlock and he says something like, you know, the door's that way, asshole, or something like that, and the crowd cheers, and that's it. Like, everything else about the match, there's no time-killing like that, or no no things that make the match feel trivial. But, um, there was a botch or two in the first match. There's a couple CM Punk spots that look sloppy. The very end spot from Joe, that's supposed to be the muscle buster, is sloppy enough that it looks 
you're not quite sure it's a muscle buster, but there's no outright botch in the match. So that's fixed. Um, I, I, the problem with the last match I, I also had was, uh, you know, the end was a little anticlimactic where it just ends with Punk hitting a DDT as time expires. This time, you know, they end with what's supposed to be the muscle buster. So the end, so every, my, I gave that match four and a quarter stars. I, I think I said I agreed with Dave Meltzer's writing of it at that time. Uh, this match, you know, is a significant improvement on an already great match because it gets rid of basically every flaw of the first match and then it just gives you more of what was great about the first match. Um, the story of it, you know, it's Matt, you went over it. It's basically first half an hour is punk dominating. Next 15 minutes is more like Joe finally makes his comeback and, and punk's in trouble. And then final 15 minutes is more of just back and forth, which is a, the way a lot of indie matches end in, except this one, you know, they've earned it because they've told a real story to build up to that last team, 15, last 15 minutes. But I would say the funny thing is while the part where they're on the top rope fighting for the Pepsi plunge or the muscle buster, like that's one of the best spots in the match. I agree. I would say the last 15 minutes in some ways, like I think the whole match is amazing, but like it's in some ways my least favorite part of the match, even though it's the most exciting part of the match with the biggest spots and the, and the crowds going the craziest because it's more like other wrestling matches. Like the, the first 45 minutes are way different than everything we see in ring of R before. And then in the last 15 minutes, it's more like we're now we've got we've taken a different road to get closer to where these matches usually go. Although, like you said, even then, you know, Joe is a guy who he's finished matches in so many different ways in this title run. In the in the match the night before, he won with an STF. But like you said, he doesn't use the iron driver, doesn't use the muscle buster. Punk used the um the Pepsi plunge in the first match, but they worked over his knees. So when he landed knees first on the Pepsi plunge, he immediately rolled out of the ring. So we've never gotten like a near fall off the Pepsi plunge and we don't get the Pepsi plunge this time. And there are just so many great moments in this match where it's, it's a really storytelling match. But I think my favorite point in this spot in the whole match is you know, a big part of this match is Punk frustrating Joe, and like we said, and then he gets to hit the the uh, the Olay kick twice on Joe, and Joe doesn't get to hit it yet, and he even does the face wash to Joe before Joe gets to do it, and then finally Joe, you think he's going to get the Olay kick, and you think, okay, we've kind of seen the swerve, which is Punk, you know, controls Joe and hits his own moves to him, but now Joe's going to get his turn. And then as Joe's going to do the Olay kick, Punk like hulks up and jumps out of the chair and they get into this really intense emotional brawl. And right in front of Dr. Keith, who is like, if you don't know who Dr. Keith, what Dr. Keith looks like, just look for the really tall shaved head gentleman in the front row who is often seen studiously writing in his notepad in the front row. Watch him. He's right like behind these guys as they get into this brawl. Dr. Keith like just becomes overcome with joy as he sees what's happening in front of him. And it's just it's such a great little moment where you don't even you think you're not going to see that moment. You think, OK, Punk's had his turn. Now it's time for Joe's turn. And then they, they still give you the Joe away kick right after that. But they give you this extra bit. And I just love how everything just it feels like a war. It tells such a great story. Like you said, it doesn't feel like a self-conscious epic. It feels like, in a way, like the best version of what it is, which is a match these two did not even plan on having probably a week before. And I guess my last thing before we can talk about other stuff 
around this match. My last thought before I take a breath is um, I think this is CM Punk's at least, you know, maybe I'll see a future one that's better on rewatch, but this is his best pure baby face performance ever. I think CM Punk is a guy like a lot of wrestlers where people think, oh, he relished playing a heel more than a face and he was a better natural heel than he was a face. And even a lot of times when he was a face, he was more like, the anti, you know, the anti-hero kind of still acted like a bit of a dick. This match is about as close as you'll ever to see to Punk, CM Punk being like the pure white meat baby face where he's vibing off the crowd's energy and like acknowledging them. And he's carrying himself like he's the king shit of the city, which I guess for this night he is. And the the crowd, I would say, is 65-35 for Punk. Like, they're definitely fans of Joe. But even that is a cool difference because Joe is usually not – you know, Joe gets booze at certain points in this match occasionally. You know, Joe is – in it's this is an away game for Joe where he's such a beloved figure in Ring of Honor. Normally, every match is like his home game. It's his house. This is another interesting flip if you're a longtime fan where – but going back to Punk, like – he is really good in this match as just a pure, like, super baby face. Like, especially, like, when Joe's in the in the second half of the match, that next 15 minutes after the first half an hour where Joe is really t- getting his first big offense on Punk. Joe's, like, I mean, Punk's selling. Like, the way he really just makes Joe look like a killer. Like, it's great baby face physical selling. He, he It's just... It's just, again, there's a lot of things in this match which are just different sides of these two guys you don't see usually that are great. And um, as far as I would give this match five stars, I remember, you know, I listen to the Voices of Wrestling podcast a lot. Uh, Joe Lanza, he has this rule, not that everyone has to use this, but he always says, if you have to think for even a second if a match is five stars, it's not five stars. I will say I did have to think for a second if this match is five stars. So if I want to go by that rule, maybe I think it's just a hair below. If I wanted to really nitpick the match, I would say that the end spot, which is supposed to be Joe hitting a muscle buster, but so sloppy you can't really tell. I would say knowing that the story of these matches, which is Punk draws Joe twice and then really wants a third match and Joe's kind of running from him. I wouldn't have ended the match with Joe maybe looking like he's about to win. I would have ended it with either them even or preferably Punk looking like he's about to win. So you really make that moment like you really make the fans feel like if if Punk just had another minute, it would have been his. Where instead, if anything, you have this idea that maybe if there was another 30 seconds, maybe Joe would have actually beaten Punk. I think that kind of goes against the story they're trying to tell of the ring. But really, this is one of the greatest matches we've seen up to this point you know it's like you said you mentioned Daniels and Key I would put this you know where we rank it I don't know that might be years down the line if we rank everything we've watched but um so far of the matches we see it's in the pantheon of uh, of that match it's in the pantheon with uh our match of the year for 2003 which is Carino and Homicide it is one of the very best matches they've ever done in this company. It's one of Samoa Joe's very best matches. It's one of CM Punk's very best matches. It's one of the very best matches in company history. It's a fantastic match that is still great. More than great. It's it, it's more than great. It's fantastic. It, it, it's, and it stands, at least in our opinion, the test of time, I think. Yeah. Now, I actually could even come back with the um – 
with the ending a little bit in the sense of if you look at the post-match promos, the ending actually does work for the storyline because Punk's whole argument is we don't know if the Muscle Buster can beat me, but I know that the Pepsi Plunge can beat you because Homicide pinned you after I hit you with it in Boston. So in, in some ways it actually played into their storyline that Punk had been hit by the plunge, but he can, he has this deniability of saying, but you didn't beat, but, but it didn't pin me and we don't know if it can. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I still kind there's still part of me that I just wish, Punk, but at the same time, I feel like an idiot for complaining because it did not hurt the third match at all or people's anticipation or what people felt about this match. So I guess that's why I prefaced it by saying if I really, really wanted to nitpick. Like a, we're talking about like for – I think for you and I, we're not Dave Meltzer 2020 where if we say a match is five stars, that means it's actually – on a seven star scale, like five stars is saying this is the best possible rating to give a match. So I'm, I guess I'm only saying if I really wanted to hyper analyze, does this deserve to be like, I'll say this, this is not the best match I've seen in my life. It might be the best match I've ever seen in ring of honor. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah. I mean, you know, I'm, I have some biases toward matches I saw in person that happened after this. Um, but as far as our rewatch goes, can't think of any that I've that I've thought was better, um, but you know that whole that whole well, well I guess we'll talk about the responses of other people now, but um, I'll yeah I'll save my comment for a little while from now. Yeah, and uh, I'm just trying to look at my notes. Is there anything I missed before we get to the reaction afterwards? I'm just trying to take a quick look. Actually, one thing I'll say about the post match because the post match is just basically they chant for five more minutes, right? And yeah. they, but then they give up that pretty quickly. Joe kind of holds the belt up, and that's it. And I actually, and then you see kind of like the crowd cheering, uh, you know, chanting ROH and chanting for CM Punk as the lights come up. But like, I like that they didn't do a whole post match like Love Fest because a lot of these great ROH matches, including the first one hour match, they did that. And it kind of makes it even feel even more organic, less self conscious that they didn't do that. Like, they didn't dwell on the greatness of the match. They were just like, we did the match, Joe gets out of there because he still has his belt. I like that. Simple. No, you know, not over the top. I appreciated that. Yeah, I, I think you do. You you're having a great point where you keep coming back to that idea. Like, this is a great match to for for people that if for some reason you haven't watched this match and you're listening to this podcast. Like, if you're one of these people like that thinks that stuff like a lot of the Kenny Omega Okada matches or stuff like those are some of the matches where people say it like they're self conscious epics and stuff like that. Like, if you're a person that wants a match that kind of feels like an epic. But isn't doesn't feel like that's and that's not to I'm not personally criticizing those matches, but if you if you believe that those matches have that kind of vibe, I think this match is kind of your answer for that because I think you'll still get a lot of what a big long epic world title match feels like without it. This feels very un, uh, this feels about as unassuming as an epic match can feel like. I would right. say right. It's like it's like workmanlike. Like these are just two guys. They're going out there. They're doing their job, and they just did as good of a job you can possibly do at it. You know what it almost reminds me of is I think we mentioned on a recent show. I brought up like there was an old comment where. Uh, Rick Flair used to say that, you know, if people thought those three matches in 1989 on pay-per-view and TV that I had with Steamboat were good, like we had matches better than that uh, on house shows, like a, like a lot of them. This almost feels like two guys on that level where it's like they could probably have like another 10 matches like this. Like they're just at this point in their careers on a vibe together, you know? Yes. Like 
like where you, you don't feel like you watch this match and it's great and it feels special and amazing, but it doesn't feel like these two could never recreate this ever again. Like you don't feel where a lot of great matches do feel like everything just clicked and they'll never have a chance like this again. Like this doesn't feel like that. No, but um, but but could they ever really get to this level again with it with all the stars aligning in terms of like the crowd and like the hometown and the surprise factor and like the moment in time of the belt. So in that sense, yes, it was like things did click. But in terms of like what they did in the ring, I agree with you. Yeah, maybe at a different time, like if they were back in the NWA eighties where they were on the house show loop a lot. But yeah, they do they do wrestle. Again, not just in Ring of Honor, but at least I think once in Britain and maybe somewhere else one time. I'm Ger- not sure. German, Germany, I think. Y- yeah, maybe that's what I was thinking of. They, I, they wrestled once or tw- I know they had a match at PWG, which might have been before this. I'm not sure. but And, of course, they had the Ring of Honor match in 2003, which was just okay. It was solid, but it wasn't anything special. But I, I do get the feeling that if these two had to wrestle each other a bunch more times, maybe it wouldn't have the same atmosphere this did. But I bet you they could – keep a really high standard during this period because i think they were just connecting in a way like a special way but um i even love you know joe pulls out the top rope splash which punk rolls out of the way of how often does he do that you know not very often i loved how uh cm punk he kind of did another thing he borrowed from steamboat where during the second half of the match he makes these little comebacks but he always like but he never really wins them like i love how he does does these little comebacks to let you know he's still in the fight but joe is still dominating it doesn't turn the tide of the match and i love how they kept this thing up of the first match which is joe a punk like gets into some strike exchanges with joe in this match and another flaw they fixed in the first match i found that first match punk strikes did not look like carry the weight close to of joe's and they look kind of weak and i didn't like that joe sold for some of them this time joe is i mean punk is much more intense and lays in the strike exchanges generally a little bit more which again fixes another problem but i like that both these matches for two hours punk loses every strike exchange he'll get some good licks in some but he always loses on the end like that's part of the story which is joe is better you know in in a fist fight you know you know kickboxing match he's gonna beat punk even if punk tries and I love, you know, more detail work like that. It's just so great. The one last thing before we get to the aftermatch reaction I wanted to ask is, is this the first time in Ring of Honor history that the fans clapped in time to Punk's music? After, it was during the match, not at the entrance, but there's a couple of times where they're trying to rattle, rally him where they're clapping in time to the AFI song, like the beat. Hmm. I'm not sure if this is the first time, but it's definitely an early time. I'd have to think more about that. Yeah. So um, that's the match. That's our thoughts. But there was this was one of the most important matches in Ring of Honor history up to this point because, for a few reasons. But first off, this was um, – let me just see how – this was the best-selling DVD in Ring of Honor history up to this point. And it would be the best until a year later when Joe versus Kabashi came out. So that's pretty impressive when you think a lot of these shows – you know. We think about the show that comes next is Liger versus Danielson. There was other shows, you know, 2003, Final Battle, which had a loaded card, and they brought in Great Muda. And a lot of these shows, you know, they had different appearances from guys like Foley. You had big matches on other shows. This was the best-selling show they'd ever done and would be for another year. So, and why was that? Well, it was because of the reaction, both from the, you know, the live reaction of people watching, but because this match got more attention than any Ring of Honor match had gotten 
in, in its history. Like I think I talked about on another show once how the way the Wrestling Observer newsletter is formatted, it's like six is like the first half of the newsletter is is stories, whatever Dave thinks are the big stories of the of the week. And then the second half is like sections that appear in every issue. Like here's all the all Japan news. Here's all the new Japan news. Here's all the, you know, WWF news. Here's all the WCW news. And then there was a here and there section where Ring of Honor would always get their blurbs in the here and there section. Until until like 2005, that's when they started getting their own section, yeah. Yeah, and to give you an idea of how big the deal this was, Ring of, Ring of Honor, I think, had gotten two, maybe three stories that were not in the here and there section before this. One, I think, was Final Battle 2003, which was their biggest attendance up to that point, had the great Muda on it. One was the Feinstein scandal, which is not how you want to get into the front pages of any publication. And one, and then there was this. When when Dave actually saw this match, he made out of his way to write an entire story in the front pages just talking about how great this match was. And more than that, he gave it a rating, and he gave it five stars. Now, people listening to this might go, Trevor, guys, that isn't a big deal. Dave gives matches six and a half stars, five, he gives matches five stars all the time. This is not a big deal. What the hell are you talking? Why is this important? And why would, does that, should anyone even care? Dave Meltzer's just one man. So I think we need to get into that. First off, Ring of Honor, you have to remember, was a company at this point, this was before iPay-per-views, this was before live streaming, this was a company sold on live ticket sales, but primarily on DVD sales. And it was a company aimed at hardcore fans, the kind of fans that would search out the best indie wrestling that would know who these guys were. You know, they weren't seeing them on TV. Most of them, some of them were on TNA, but, and the most hardcore of the hardcores. In other words, their fan base were the people that would read the wrestling observer, the torch, they would be on message boards. That was their fan base, you know? So Gabe, cared a great deal about what the newsletters meant. Have you ever read the Ring of Honor website during this era, wherever got like a Ring of Honor um, DVD catalog sent to you? Every page was covered with the Observer said this match got this. Mike Johnson said this match got this. The Pro Wrestling Torch said this match got this. The the, the blurb, those were their Roger Ebert blurbs on a movie poster. It was very important. So that's one half of it. The other half of it is Dave Meltzer did not usually used to give every match five stars. Like I'm not saying whatever, whether you think Dave has gone nuts or overkill or whatever, that, that that's a different conversation. We can just say Dave had given two technically when Dave says he, it was never a five star match scale. I think he's being kind of crazy because it usually was, but technically there were two matches he had given six stars to. He gave one of the Flair Steamboat matches six stars, and he gave Kawada Masawa from 94 six stars. Have you actually read him give those six stars? Um, because I saw that in Wikipedia. I think I remember he has referenced in the past that he gave um, the Steamboat Flare match six stars. Because I've read those reviews, and I don't remember him getting them six stars, but, you know, I guess Dave knows better than I do. <laughs> And I think I think there's he also he said he might have given like a Terry Funk like match like a maybe Jerry Lawler Terry Funk match or something six stars well I don't know but the point is yeah I I don't I don't buy it Dave but anyway the the point is and he he said like Cornette invented and he gave something six stars, whatever but the point is let's take you back to this time Dave Meltzer very rarely gave matches five stars he might get one or two a year and that's for the whole world now yeah, think about this I was gonna oh, say Japan got one in two thousand four. I think they got one in 2003, but go ahead. 
Yeah. Yeah. So there had not been a match in the United States of America that had gotten five stars from Dave Meltzer since 1997. That is seven years. Not since Shawn Michaels versus Undertaker, Hell in the Cell at Bad Blood. He had never given – not a WWF match, not a WCW match, nothing. You know, five stars. And, so, and by, the, by the way, can I just add one more thing to this? Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so after the Hell in the Cell match between Shawn Michaels and The Undertaker in 1997, the next WWE match to get five stars happened in 2011. <laughs> And it was CM Punk versus John Cena at Money in the Bank. So basically, there were literally 14 years in between five-star WWE matches. Yeah, I mean, that's that's wild. And obviously, people are going to argue, you know, people that this will turn into a thing. But the point of it isn't necessarily you have to agree or whatever. You, the point, of, I, I guess, what I'm trying to make is... It was a big, it was a big deal. <laughs> it was a big deal because there was a lot of people that were going to buy this tape or try Ring of Honor for the first time because Dave Meltzer gave it five stars. Nowadays, there are five-star matches that happen in New Japan. That happen, they happen so frequently that there are five-star matches that when I looked them up, like people don't remember them or think of them as classics. Back in like the 90s, because five-star matches happen so infrequently, like anytime Dave Meltzer gave a five-star match five stars – People went out of their way to see it, even if it wasn't like a scene they really knew or or were a big fan of. It was a huge deal because it was a very rare thing. And so this was a huge deal for Ring of Honor. It was a huge deal to get five stars, and it was it was something that was going to get people to try the product that had never tried it before. So going to the notes, um, first Dave just got live reports. He hadn't gotten the tape yet. He wrote in the Observer. You wrote in the Observer. Reports from many different people now that, that reports from many different people now that we've talked to who saw both matches, both Punk Joe matches, said it was better than their match in Dayton, and crowd was super hot for the last ten minutes. Foley, Mick Foley, called it one of the best live matches he's ever seen. What was amazing was late in the match, Foley went into, into the stands to watch the bout, and nobody came up to him instead of watching the bout. Punk wound up with a black eye. That's something we forgot to mention. Punk gets a black eye in this match. Both guys got standing ovations. Punk wanted a no-time-limit title match when they returned on February 26th, Dave writes, which I think was edited. I think other live reports said that too, which is an interesting thing because I think that tells you, Matt, that Punk and Joe maybe didn't know where this feud was going. Well, definitely, because I mentioned before, they didn't know that the third match was supposed to be in December, which it was. Or, and, Joe maybe, like, and Joe didn't know when he was losing the title. Yeah, I was about to say, that probably tells you Joe didn't know he was going to lose the title in December. Because why else would you even tease that? That, you know, when we come to Chicago in late February, by then, you know, by then he's actually feuding with Jimmy Rave by that point, and Joe's not, the, hasn't been the champion for a couple months, or right. three months almost. So, um... So that's that. I think that's a pretty interesting anecdote that Foley's like, no one even noticed I was there. And I guess uh, some fans, some live report also said that like it was cool, like you could see Gabe in the crowd near the end, and that Gabe was really marking out in the crowd. Like it was with, one of those matches with, with, where, Mar- with Mark Nolte, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but it definitely does, it does indicate this was one of those matches that felt like people knew it was special probably before it was over, even. Um, and then I don't know if I should read all of this, but. This was the story that sold a lot of DVDs. This is the Observer story after Dave watched his review. Dave wrote, One of the most talked about matches of late 
was the 10-16 Samoa Joe versus CM Punk 60-minute draw from Chicago Ridge, Illinois for the Ring of Honor title. It was the rematch of their 60-minute draw on June 12th in Dayton, which I gave four and a half, four and a quarter stars to, that many had talked about as a match of the year contender. Mick Foley watched the Chicago Ridge match, seeing the second half in the stands, and nobody even noticed he was there because there was so much attention on the match. Dave really likes that anecdote. Uh, Foley called it one of the best matches he'd ever seen live. Everyone who saw both matches said the Chicago Ridge match was better, and after seeing it, I think it was considerably better. The match really exemplified the upside of Ring of Honor, which is, to their niche audience, the booking of the championship as the main character. The story here was as old as wrestling. Samoa Joe played world champion, who is respected but plays very subtle heel, only because the challenger, Punk, is a local product. What made the match was, in 2004, they got the audience to totally buy into the idea that the belt is a meaningful world title. With the exception of Noah, which books the world champion similarly, no other work promotion can get that kind of intensity from the crowd in their world title matches now. Although there were some early in the year, early in the year WWE matches like Eddie Guerrero versus Brock Lesnar at the Cow Palace and the WrestleMania main event from Madison Square Garden that did as well. To go 60 minutes today, you need everything working for you. You need wrestlers who are over and a title which people take seriously. When Triple H and Chris Benoit tried to do it on Raw, realistically, it failed. While the crowd was into the final 10 minutes, they didn't care much about anything but the finish and they knew the finish wasn't coming. Of course, that's the problem with the Iron Man dynamic, as opposed to a match that sim- simply goes the hour. The downside is it was 750 people in a city the size of Chicago. Ring of Honor delivers the nearly perfect product for its audience, but right now the audience still is smaller than it needs to be. But the crowd was buzzing for this match even before it started, which was half the battle. After the Japanese streamers opened, the early part of this match was very superior, very much superior to the first match. The first match had them playing around with a ringside fan, and they were trying to kill time, knowing they were going so long. This match saw, saw them do a lot of fat wrestling, but they never lost focus on the goal of making it appear to be a realistic match for a realistic title. The crowd took to the realism as every escape and exchange got a reaction, even though it was mainly moves like headlocks, head scissors, and hammerlocks. A WWE crowd would have lost interest early, although that's irrelevant because this crowd didn't, and you can't possibly do a bunch of big moves early in a 60-minute match or the crowd will burn out long before the halfway point. I was really impressed with Joe's work as champion because his job was to make Punk credible, but he sacrificed none of his own credibility. He came across as something special himself, and if he doesn't, people don't think the belt mean, means anything if the champ isn't something special. Kind of a weird sentence. There, there were some big moves as as starting at about 25 minutes in, such as Joe doing a suplex on the floor, Punk with a tope, and then playing off each other's trademark moves, most of which are Japanese-inspired Joe, at his size, did an elbow suicida, which is a tope ending with an elbow smash. It really turned into something special about 45 minutes in, with some great near falls, with WrestleMania main event-like crowd intensity. They weren't moves you hadn't seen, but they were good, believable exchanges of strikes and moves, throwing in Japanese-style spots with a little MMA. At 52 minutes, loud Ring of Honor chants started, and it was clear it didn't matter who won the match at that point, because people thought it was so good. The show ended with submissions and near falls, with the idea of it peaking when Joe did the muscle buster just as time it was running out. On the home video, this, which was just released, there are minor problems. You don't hear the ring noise in the first 15 minutes, but that gets corrected, and you do get the crowd noise. Matt, first off, let's just say, in the version we watched, which is the home release, you hear crowd noise the whole match, right? 
Yeah, like, I mean, I think he's saying you don't get the ring noise, like as in like what the rest, what noises the wrestlers are making. That's, I didn't notice. No, I didn't notice that either. I, you know, I don't know if he got the final version of that. But in the end, that barely matters. The commentary done by Mark Nolte and Booker Gabe Sapolsky, who uses a pseudonym of Jimmy Bauer for some reason, even though I'm guessing 95% of the people buying the tapes know it's him, was good. Nolte is excellent in this kind of environment, doing the X's and O's style of sports commentary and explaining strategy and the story of the match. At the 42-minute mark, they cut out the commentary, saying the match is so great they they want to watch it from the stands. In most cases, that would be a bad idea, particularly in a match where the story is so much of the bout. It didn't hurt this match at all, as just with the visuals and no commentary, it is clear it's one of the best matches in years, and I'd give it five stars. The idea that the match wouldn't play as well with another crowd, which is true, is irrelevant. Finally, Dave, will, you acknowledge this. I feel like, Matt, that this in a weird way is like the payoff to us doing through the years for three years and being annoyed over and over again that Dave keeps saying, this match was great in Ring of Honor, but it wouldn't have gotten over in WWE. It's like, finally, Dave goes the other way. Like He's almost like refuting himself where he's like, he keeps bringing it up and then it's like, well, that's irrelevant. It's like Dave yeah. is Gollum and Smeagol fighting with himself. Uh the match showed that if you book something to be important, prestigious, your audience ultimately will take it that it is. Joe and the champ role has been protected and made to look strong. The idea of a 60-minute match is that it is supposed to sell, elevate the title and make the challenger seem on the level as the champion. It sure worked in both aspects, here in both aspects. The idea of the champion that there to mainly get over the challenger to or frequent title changes or ref bumps and runs. Dave's kind of going over there. When you think the champ is retaining it via a fluke, is lucky to hold the title and therefore create the emotion that the next time you see him, he'll probably lose. He'll probably lose the title. Would make this mean the same as any other title does to his audience? Very little. It's not just the audience. Blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to try and go through this. Days ago. Well, wait. Dave writes, it's not just the audience because it's the same crowd that cared very little about the same title early in the promotion's history when they put on Xavier, poor Xavier, with the idea that top guys didn't need the belt and the belt would make Xavier a star. Joe doesn't need the belt, but if anyone else had it, it wouldn't mean all that much. And this is probably the best lesson of all. Joe doesn't need the belt after the belt needed Joe. After nearly two years as champion, they've created a situation where when it does change hands, it will be huge. It's an emotion a lot of newer fans can't comprehend and current writers would think is ancient. Yet with all the current, all the companies doing it the new way, nobody even knows or cares what the, who the champions are, even the fans in the building. And if they see it change, they probably won't remember it more than a week later. The idea that seeing a world title change was something you were lucky to see live and you would never see on television except on videotape once in your lifetime. They say that's ancient thinking, and I thought you couldn't have much more than a one-year run as champion in modern wrestling because the audience won't care and you run out of challengers. Yet in 2004, the only two belts that are able to garner intensity and believability every time out are Joe's belt and Kenta Kobashi's. In both cases, it's the lengthy title reign that hasn't made the title situation boring, and the clean finishes, no ref bumps, and outside interference hasn't made it hard to put together finishes. Both belts mean far more at the end of 2004 than they did at the end of 2003, at which time both men had already held those belts too long, quote-unquote, for the modern fan. The near, um, We're almost done. The nearly two years without a title change has have elevated the titles to where every title match, just by being a title match, now has the feel of being more important. What have become the booking crutches to get a reaction, the controversial finishes and the title changes, are the very things that appear to be what is crippling the idea of what a championship used to be, and apparently still can be today. Anyone who is considering voting for the match of the year needs to go out of your way to get this video. If you aren't, it's a great match to enjoy and even more to learn from. 
So that was Dave on one of the front pages of The Observer going out of his way to put over this match. Um, Matt, the only thing I would say I disagree with that is Dave says Joe didn't need the title. The belt needed Joe. I would say like Joe and the belt needed each other at the start of the reign. Like certainly yeah. Joe didn't need the title at this point, but Joe definitely gained a lot from being the champ. Yeah, Joe wouldn't have been the star that he was in ROH at this point if he hadn't been the champion. So, you know. uh, Going to other reviews, Wade Keller gave the match four and three-quarter stars. He said um, the last the they built slowly for 30 minutes. If you've never seen Joe or Punk before, the nuances of the early action where every move meant something based on their past might seem a bit tedious. The last 30 minutes show off Ring of Honor at its best and why Joe is the best world champion in this country in years. It was believable, intense, enthralling, dramatic, exhilarating, and somehow a notch better than their June 12th classic, The State of the Art, four and three-quarter stars. I stopped short of five stars on the main event rating because never in the first 30 minutes was there any sense that this match was going anything but at least 45 minutes. In other words, it seemed as if they were pacing themselves compared to their usual style where there's more of a sense of urgency. It's a small criticism, and the last 30 minutes was as good as anything, but that's why I stopped short of five stars. The match, though, was from start to finish, was true to the characters and the feud. Mark Nolte has become a great color commentator for this style. He would really be valuable for any first-time Ring of Honor viewers who hadn't been seen previous Joe Punk encounters. I mean, they're right that Mark Nolte is great in this particular type of match. Yeah, the problem is it's not the rest of it. Uh, right. Bruce Mitchell gave the whole show 7.5 out of 10. He says, buy this mat tape, buy this tape, buy it for the 60 minute P- C- Ring of Honor title match between Samojo and CM Punk. Buy it for the hard work. Most of all, buy it for the passion of a company that made its name and its stars with no help, no superstar rub, no television in the midst of a recession. Boy, Matt, I could go for a 2004 recession right now. Um, <laughs> I, I like this part. I'm not going to read all this, but Bruce writes, CM Punk shouldn't be a good wrestler. He's not the natural athlete for it, but he adds more moves and more stamina in every performance. I don't think he adds more moves and more stamina, especially when he was doing 93-minute matches in 2003. Like That sounds like Bruce often sounds, which is like a guy who doesn't watch very much Ring of Honor. And doesn't want to admit it. <laughs> yeah, and kind of making assumptions. Um, what Punk does is his execution keeps getting better. Yes. Um, anyway, so he, he ended his much like a day writing by this tape. Um, everyone, I'm just going through this really quickly. Uh, the, this live report writes from that, uh, wrote into PW insider. Let me see if I can just make sure to credit the person, uh, a guy just named Jim, Jim Thee was his username. It was really cool to see Gabe Sapolsky out in the crowd watching the last 20 minutes or so of the match, too. He was clapping along with the crowd and kept cheering along. Right at the end of the match, H.C. Loke came out and stood right near our section of the general admission seats, and I was almost 100% sure that Punk was going to pull it out and that he just wanted to be out there to experience it, but alas, it was for naught. After the match, Punk pretty much challenged slash announced slash hinted that there will be a rematch February 26th in Chicago, which, again, no... Um, finally, let's just go over some notes from the shoot interview, the Joe Punk straight shooting about the match. Punk says he felt like at least 75% of the crowd knew they were going to a draw this time, or at least for the first 50, 50, or they were going to go at least 50 to 55 minutes. Uh, Joe says that they didn't plan out a lot of stuff for this match because of all of, because of all of the things that went on before the match, the abrupt nature of how it came to be. 
Punk says, like the first draw, a lot of the match was thought up on the fly. Punk says they had the idea of having a lot of headlock spots from the first match or switching them up. Uh, Punk uses the phrase learn spots to describe kind of the psychology of this and talks about the story idea that this time Joe would reverse more of Punk stuff, be more prepared as opposed to the first draw where Punk's strategy caught him off guard. Punk says the best stuff in this match, though, was all thought up on the fly. Joe says, as Matt mentioned earlier, that he thought of that stretch that had Punk nearly bent backwards like Jack Evans. Punk jokes at this point in the shoot, did I mention I had a bad back? And Joe laughs at this point, and Punk says that he was, uh, no, Joe says Punk was cussing him out the entire time, saying stuff like, you son of a bitch, I hope you're finding this really amusing. Um, Joe estimates 8% of the match was on the fly in the ring. He talks about the spear being thought impromptu. Punk talks about listening to the crowd, giving them more of what they reacted to and less of what they didn't. Punk says both of the draws had big fight feels, and he's still stunned. He's a ba- he's such a babyface in Chicago. At this point in the shoot, Joe interjects because he's been an asshole to so many people there. Which I love the Joe Punk like friendship chemistry. Um, Punker, yeah, Punker says this match gave it that gave it this match a different dynamic. Punk and Joe both think the match turned out great. Punk says on different days you'll get a different answer from him if the second or the third match was the best of their trilogy. Punk says he knew about eight minutes into the match that they had the crowd in the palm of their hands and they were going to go nuts for the story they had planned on that night. Punk then says that they, when they were doing the late match fight on the top rope and the crowd was booing and cheering, he and Joe were like ecstatic with each other on the top turnbuckle. They were just... Um, Joe says the only thing he would have changed is to have the time cues announced over the PA. He says he told them to do it, but for some reason it didn't happen. Joseph says it wouldn't be to help them. It helps the audience, too. It creates a sense of immediacy, you know, an urgency with the crowd. They felt the match ended a little flat because of that. Joe chalks up to miscommunication because Ring of Honor couldn't fly in all their people that do the odd jobs from the east to the Midwest for the Midwest double shot. Uh, Punk says the second match was better than the first. He loves the match despite being his own worst critic. Punk says he and Joe probably talked during the match about how special it felt before it was even over. Joe says Punk had him in a headlock and asked him, what do you think? And Joe just told him, it's going pretty damn good. Uh, they both guys then talk about their love of watching the crowd reactions to matches after the fact. Joe says the first time both of them watched this match after it happened on tape, they didn't watch anything that happened in the ring. They just watched crowd reactions. And Punk says it's a great way to learn what works and what doesn't to rewatch matches and just watch the crowd reactions. Um, and finally, the last note, upon being asked what they thought of Meltzer giving the match five stars, Punk says he's never read The Observer, and Joe says he's never had a subscription and only read them from promoters who had them. Joe thought it was a cool, uh, both guys said it was a really big deal to Gabe, and that he would tell them that getting five stars was a big deal, and that wrestlers in the 80s lived and died by The Observer. Joe says it was the most excited he had ever heard Gabe on the phone. Punk says it sunk in for him as a big deal when he learned that the last U.S. match to get five stars in the U.S. was Shawn Michaels and Undertaker from Hell in the Cell. So that's all the notes on the match. Um, after the match, the crowd chants for five more minutes. Bobby Cruz slides the Ring of Honor world title into the ring for the ref to hand to, to Joe, and Punk grabs it instead. He stares at it for a while, like gives it this real meaningful stare. Both men get to their feet. Punk hands the belt to Joe. They shake hands. The crowd chants Ring of ROH. Punk stumbles to the back as Joe holds up the belt and walks to the back, leaving – or no, Punk just stumbles. He doesn't – he stumbles back to the mat. Can't read my own notes at this point. As Joe holds up the belt – You, you, you just you just worked a 60-minute match right there, so that's why. Yeah, see, I'm losing – see, you're the punk of this. I'm the Joe. I'm. This is me botching the, the muscle buster at the end. Oh, no. You, you – 
you kept it pristine right to the end of your large chunk. Um, you, 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 you did like triple what I did. So no, CM Punk gets loud. Thank you, Chance. And then finally, we get the last two little promos to end the show that we talked about at the start. Uh, cut to backstage post match. Punk says there's a few things he's certain of, but unfortunately, there's more things he's uncertain of. He knows he couldn't get the job done against Joe in 60 minutes, but neither could Joe. Punk knows the Pepsi Plunge can put Joe away because it did in Boston. Unfortunately, Homicide got the pin that night, not him. He also doesn't know if Joe's Muscle Buster can beat him as he hit it right when time expired. Punk says he knows that they can't do this again. If they can't be contained in 60 minutes... The answer is simple. When they meet again, and, and then Punk says, we will meet again, whether it's four months from now, eight months from now, a year. Punk says he doesn't care if it's in another country or if it's even for Ring of Honor or another promotion. But he knows it will be for the Ring of Honor title and it will be no time limit. And then we'll learn who is the king of Ring of Honor. So that's Punk's promo. Matt, I thought it was a very good promo with the only problem being the odd decision at one point to zoom in incredibly close on like one section of CM Punk's face during a random point in this promo. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting that you use the word decision because <laughs> it probably wasn't a decision. It was probably just like somebody just not paying close enough attention. And finally, we end the show cutting to Joe somewhere else backstage. Joe says Punk had a second chance and still didn't get the job done against him. Joe says, don't expect to get another shot. And this is one of my favorite lines in wrestling history. Joe says, the job is to beat me, not to survive me. And then Joe says, you had a good effort, Punk, but it was your last one. Um, I love that line. It's basically like a new version of to be the man, you got to beat the man. And why I love that line so much beyond it just sounding so fucking cool is that when you think about what Joe has to accomplish here, Joe's not turning heel. He's going to be a baby face even long after he loses the title. But he in the storyline, he's kind of putting off you know, the third match. And so he has to kind of do that in a way where he doesn't seem like a complete asshole, even though technically – Punk is more the facer because you're like, yeah, Punk does deserve a rematch. You haven't beaten him yet. But in that one sentence, you know, the job is to beat me, not to survive me. He like really makes you think, well, maybe Joe does have a point. You know, he, this guy has had two hours to face Joe and he's never beat him. He's just survived him. Also, it's a great. Also, Joe is just his so his delivery is so cool, like and chill. Like he's just like very confident, you know, very serious, and it's like. He just makes you buy into what he's saying because he just seems like he believes it. And so many other wrestlers with that line would come off as like wimps or like right. scared. Right. He, he he, yeah. He comes off like he's right. You know, like that. That's yeah. sort of, which is which is you're right. It's an impressive feat. And that's the end of the show. And uh, that's that's a hell of a show. Um, that is like. It, it's weird in a way. It's not a one match show because I think the other two, the the other top three matches, the other well, the other top two of the final three matches are both pretty good. They're not go out of your way to see, but they're good. And the undercard, you know, there's some enjoyable action, but it's all short, kind of inconsequential stuff. But it's a one match show. But if it's a one match show, it's the best match maybe in Ring of Honor history. It's fantastic. It's something you should go out of your way to see. I think anyone, you'll love it more if you have the context, but I think you'll be able to appreciate it even without this context. Um, fantastic. You know, it's crazy that we're finally here, Matt, that we finally got to see the show again. Yeah, I mean, I um, I definitely, I think I liked it, the, the second half of the show more than you did. I think that the seven main event is very, very, very good. I don't think anyone would be wasting their time if they watched it. Um, so I, you know, I think, I think it's a, 
I think it's a very good show, honestly, all in all. Not, you know, not the first half of the show didn't have much great stuff, but it did have the novelty of Foley and Steamboat. I thought that it had a bunch of good matches in the second half, and in my opinion, the best matchup to this point in Ring of Honor history, as like over a third of the entire presentation. So, to me, this is one of the better shows of the year um, that we've seen. Um, probably one of the better shows that they've done overall. Um, I still don't know what my show of the year for 2004 is going to be. Um, but, and I, and I don't think it'll be this one as the show of the year, but it would, it could receive an honorable mention. I will also use that phrase to plug the, an honorable mention, an excellent Ring of Honor retrospective podcast hosted by Jeff Schwartz and Shane Hagedorn. But, um, <laughs> but no, I think this is, this is a good show. And yeah, but really it's the main event. Like, what else are we talking about here? Joe versus Punk 2 is named after it for a reason. If you haven't seen that match, I'd say as much as of any matches we've talked about, that's a match you have to go see. And I, you know, as much as that's a one-hour-long commitment, I'm going to ask you to take a two-hour commitment and watch the first match also. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then re-listen to this podcast, and we're asking a five-hour commitment. <laughs> and also listen to that one, eight-hour commitment. And be sure when we review Punk Joe 3, okay, and then listen to that show, going to be like a 13-hour commitment maybe. You're gonna, you're gonna get, the point is you're going to get committed after all of this. So. <laughs> um, is that term PC anymore? Probably not. <laughs> I'm not sure. Um my dad was committed once, but that's a long story. Anyway, uh, <laughs> okay. um, no, no comment. Uh, thank God my mom doesn't listen to this show, or I'd be getting an angry phone call. Um, so, I, I think the most amazing thing looking back on this show mat, or this match is again going to like the story of it. It wasn't supposed to happen. Like they don't expressly say this, but I think from watching the shoot interview and reading all the notes and knowing at the booking plans, I think Gabe's plan was always. After, you know, Punk and Joe thought the idea of the hour-long draw. You know, Gabe booked them in Dayton, but they thought the idea of doing an hour-long draw. And then as we uh, just talked about on this show, then they sat down with Gabe and all agreed. And Punk and Joe seemed to be really behind the gung-ho for the idea of delay it as long as possible. And as we've seen here, I don't think they knew when they were going to get it. But Gabe, it looked like, always knew it was going to be December 4th, which when you think about it, is if you know that you're going to have Joe lose to Aries on final battle – 12-4, All-Star Extravaganza 2, which is where Punk Joe 3 will happen, that would literally be, literally be the last show you could do Punk Joe for the title before Joe loses the title. So I think if you look at the plan, it was supposed to be only one one-hour draw and then probably keep them apart all the way from June to early December, All-Star Extravaganza 2, probably do a match that was probably looks like the match they actually have, which is a half-an-hour match, which means... This whole match, which is the one that got the best – all the sales, that got the Reserver review, got got all the people to fall in love with Ring of Honor and try it and for, forget about the Feinstein scandal and all that, it was a match that wasn't supposed to happen, which is amazing. Like there's so many times in life I was thinking the other day, Matt, I guess the way I'll end my thoughts is my adult life, there's been so many times where I feel like – People sometimes theorize that there's an infinite number of worlds where an infinite number of possibilities. And a lot of times people will always say, oh, after 9-11 or after the last year or two, like, oh, we're living in one of the bad timelines. I feel like this match is one of those rare moments in my adult life, as, as cringy as it is to give it this much importance, where I feel like because so many weird things had to happen for this match to take place that this is one of those times where like we live in a weird timeline but it worked out to our advantage like it feels like if you took a hundred random timelines 97 of them wouldn't have had the second joe punk mat draw and we got it and it's great 
but you still won't give it five stars, even though you have all that to say. Okay, it's five stars. It's five stars. <laughs> no, it's five and a quarter. Now I've won up to you, man. Now I've done a melter. Five and a quarter. You know, I've never said there's an upper end to this scale. So hoist, hoist on my own petard. <laughs> no, but it, it it's it's a match people have to have to have to see if you're interested in this era of Ring of Honor. It's an essential essential viewing for this era. But um. That's about it. Um, yeah, I got nothing to add, man. That, that, that's yeah, not something. I, 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 so for plugs, uh, through the years at gmail.com, T-H-R-O-H, the years at gmail.com, at Trevor Dame on Twitter, at Mayor MGF on Twitter. Uh, we have a thread on the plug section of the ProWrestlingOnly.com forums. And next time we will be covering if you we, the countdown continues for this was the fifth final show of the year next fourth final show of the year how could we possibly follow this up how about Jushin Freegan Liger how about Joe Gagne annoying me as always well just kidding I, I was I tried to be fake me and I could do it but how about Jushin Liger Brian Danielson Joe Gagne um the three incredible things all together on one show. It's going to happen. That's our next episode through the years. Three great tastes that taste great together. Until next time, have a good time. Have a great time. Happy birthday, Dr. Keith Lipinski.